Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Hey, everybody. Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. What's are we recording? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> What's well, the episode started now? I, w- I was, yeah. I was, I was going to say something, something to do with Texas. But to be honest, mm-hmm. you know, why, why do, why do we do this? Why do we let ourselves, you know, get famous for 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 saying a particular bit and then just keep repeating it over and over again? Are we so creatively bankrupt that there's there's nothing else we can do but repeat our greatest hits? In order to recapture some of the some of the the excitement that we felt as younger men. Anyway, yeah. my co hosts on this episode are Garrison Davis, James Stout, and Mia Wong. Welcome to It yeah. Could Happen Here. Um, <laughs> Hi, Robert. I'm glad you're doing so well. <laughs> We're all doing great. James, yeah. you've just been having a searing emotional experience at the border. I have, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And everyone else is busy living in the United States, which is its own searing emotional experience. Um, yeah. And today, today we're going to be talking about the both the most and least American state, Texas. Huzzah! Uh, who here? Yeah, lovely, lovely yeah. place. Yeah, who who here's spent a lot of time in Texas? Garrison, you lived in the Dallas area for a I, while, I have, right? Mm-hmm. Not a lot, but I've I've made my visits to Texas over mm-hmm. the years. With you, even in the murder house, you you and I have quaffed many a Shinerbach together, uh, James. Many 
Um, okay, I guess we'll move into the fucking episode. So uh, there was a there was a, a, a an email sent out by TexasDemocrats.org recently with the title "Texas Moves from Solid Red to Battleground." Um, sure, and, you know, like clockwork, <laughs> a lot of Democrats got very excited, um, and I made a, a couple of people made posts being like, "Hey, this is the same thing that happens every single election." They are never right. Texas is never a battleground, and it always costs an insane amount of money. It is a con by D.C. political consultants to get your money and pump it into something that will fill up their coffers uh, and not achieve anything of value for the state of Texas or for the Democrats nationwide. And this makes people very angry uh, for two reasons. One, they tend to interpret it as saying, abandon Texas and the people there, which is not the statement I was making or anyone else was making. And number two, everyone kind of obsessively starts pointing out like, look, look at how over the last 30 years, you know, the the, the things have narrowed in Texas and the 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 proportion of like uh, democratic votes is you know raised. This is a this is winnable. We can do it. We can do it. Um, we're going to talk today about why the anyone who talks to you about flipping Texas as a political goal that you should give money to is conning you, um, and not only conning you but making it actually more difficult for Democrats to win both in Texas and nationwide. That's 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 the premise of the episode, everybody. Here's here's how Bernie can still win though. At the very mm-hmm. end, we will give you an. In, <laughs> yeah, an we're we're gonna let you know. He's got a shot. Look, yeah. look. If 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 he if he is capable of putting another three rounds of six point five in into a, a dinner plate size target at one hundred and fifty <laughs> yards. <laughs> now, uh, that was a that was anyway. He, he, he'd have to shoot a lot of people to make. He's going to deploy Brianna yeah. Joy into a. To ah, inside ah, of it. Do not say that name. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely not. So I, no, I just maxed no. out the levels of my horrible, horrible person. So. I, I want to talk about this because I, I find it like I, I think people tend to interpret this. I've certainly gotten accused of like, oh, you're just kind of being like a nihilist. Uh, this is you're being, you know, just an anti-electoralist. You're not being practical. There was a there was one particular guy who's like a local Democratic candidate who responded seven times to my tweet being like <laughs> with variations. <laughs> and his, his obsession people, was like, if we win Texas, it's impossible for the GOP to win national elections, which is true. If theoretically the Democrats yeah. flipped Texas, the GOP would have no chance at winning a federal election ever again. Yeah. And, and um, like, so sim- simultaneous to this, right, if if the Republican – there are more Republicans in California than there are basically any other state in the union. And if the Republicans won California, they would they would win every election forever. Yeah. Yeah. Not yeah. Gonna happen. Not going to happen. I mean, it's it's one of those things. I am not saying Texas will never be a, a blue state. Um, you know, that is something that is possible, even likely, given enough time. What I am saying, the argument that I'm making here, and I'll I'll provide you with evidence, is is that number one. Focusing on these elections from the top down. And when you're saying we want to flip Texas, that's a top down approach, right? You are not focusing on we want to fill up and win a bunch of different local elections. We want to flip, you know, the state houses. We want to flip uh, a bunch of mayoralties and stuff. Um, You are saying what matters is how Texas votes in the national election. Um, and if you were to get, if you were to kind of eke out a, a bear, like in Georgia, right, where you, you get a, a narrow victory in the federal election, that would be great for the Democratic Party. 
one of my issues with it is that kind of focusing obsessively on flipping Texas isn't focusing on the stuff that actually will help Texans, like Texans currently being targeted by the state government, because flipping the state in a federal election, but not taking the governor's seat, not taking the lieutenant governor's seat, not like actually taking the 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 state house, um, yeah. doesn't improve life for people in Texas. I think the the kind of the degree to which the federal government Biden's administration has been unable to push back very effectively against kind of a lot of the shit that DeSantis has been doing in Florida. Um, You know, they have started to make some attempts is evidence of this. And kind of more to the point, even if you don't agree with that, fundamentally, these strategies that the Democratic Party has embraced in Texas do not work. Um, The Texas Democratic Party is incompetent. They are bad at their job. They are worse. People bring up Georgia a lot when I talk about flipping Texas, and folks are like, well, we flipped Georgia. And it's like, yeah, because the, 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 the state elected officials and candidates in Georgia, number one, the state party did a much better job of kind of harvesting is a weird way to, to phrase it, but of, of incubating talent to run for election in a number of local offices than the Texas Democratic Party has ever done. Um, and that was a big part of what allowed them to be competitive and eventually to flip the state. Um, there's a lot of like kind of dollar sign information on how bad the state party in Texas is at this shit. And I, I guess I should go ahead and provide some of that now. Um, so in the 2022 election, uh, the midterms, famously an unusually good showing for the Democratic Party nationwide uh, for a midterm election. Everywhere but Texas, uh, O'Rourke ran against Greg Abbott. He lost by 11 percent. Um, this is kind of to contrast the election that got everyone excited when he was running against Cruz. I think they were like 3 percent apart. Um and again, the only reason – there was this kind of mistaken belief and excitement among Dems that uh, O'Rourke, because he was so close to Cruz, had a real shot of winning Texas. No, he he got kind of close to beating Cruz because Ted – even Republicans hate Ted Cruz. No one has ever liked that man. His own wife can barely stand to be in a room with him. His political allies would turn the other cheek if fucking somebody yeah, – anyway, we shouldn't talk about political assassinations on this podcast. It wouldn't, it wouldn't anger <laughs> anybody though right Lindsey Graham has said that like Lindsey Graham's like what maybe the only good joke a Republican elected officials ever told is that if you were to shoot Ted Cruz on the floor of Congress uh, and the trial was held in Congress like n- nobody would vote to convict the murderer um, <laughs> yeah anyway yeah. so Beto lost quite badly to Greg Abbott and beyond that Basically, every statewide candidate that the Democrats ran lost in that election. It was a bad election for the Democratic Party. And people who pay attention to Texas politics and actually like aren't just trying to like grift your donation money know this. Joel Montfort, a Democratic consultant in North Texas, said, quote, it's been one election after another where we ramp everybody up and set these expectations that we're going to finish in first, and then we finish in second. I don't see any indication that we can win at statewide levels or won't continue to bleed house seats to the other party. Um, I love the this, use of finish in second there as if there's like a yeah. podium on elections. Well, I think yeah, libertarians. Yeah, there's libertarians. That's not out of the range <laughs> yeah, of, yeah, of, yeah, of, yeah, of the Texas Democratic Party to take the L to yeah. like Jill Stein. 
Yeah, there were some kind of there were some wins by Democrats in Texas. They managed to hold on to two out of three seats, congressional seats in uh, battleground regions in South Texas. Yeah, but they um, still lost they, one. Yeah, they in did. They did still lose one. Insane. Um, and the, you know the it, GOP had to spend a lot of money to do that, but like one of the one of the points is that so they 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 held on to two of those seats and they won a contested seat in the suburbs of Dallas, uh, and you know the, like but basically in all of these areas, uh, these were like super narrow wins, like these the, the the big successes, and they were narrow wins in areas that Joe Biden had carried by double digits two years ago. And Joe Biden is a historically like that is part some of the some of what will show you how bad the Texas Democratic Party is. Joe Biden is not a popular president. And the fact that he carried a lot of these areas by more than the candidates who narrowly won in 2022 could is not a great sign for the way things are trending. Yeah, it's probably also worth pointing out that like those southern Texas seats, like in the Rio Grande Valley, right? Like, yeah, those people are normally Democrats. Yeah, but you have guys like uh, Henry. Is it Quella? Quala. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quala. Yeah, who like C- is opposed C- to abortion rights? Yeah, yeah, and, and extremely hawkish on the border. And like, yeah, yeah. What do we gain by having like, yeah, blue team good? Like, not really. If this person's going to take away your bodily autonomy and brutalize people for coming to this country for wanting yeah. a better life. Yeah, it's um, it's like a lot of the some of these wins are kind of like marginal at best, given the compromises or or just given the kind of Democrats who can win. It's like a Joe Manchin kind of situation. Yeah, exactly. Um, and more to the point, like it, it it's not not only is this like evidence kind of that the Democrat strategy isn't isn't working. It's not simply that they tried something and it failed. They tried something and it was so expensive that it stopped them from trying things in other areas where the money could have gone better. For an example of how fucking wasteful particularly the Beto O'Rourke campaign was, right? He loses by 11 points to Greg Abbott. He raised $77 million to lose by that much. A few years earlier, yeah. Lupe Valdez ran against Greg Abbott. She spent, raised like $2 million and lost by 13 points. So $75 million <laughs> yeah. may have bought Beto 2%. Uh, you know, yeah, like, if you assume like, that with, national trends had nothing to do with that gap closing by a tiny amount. Like with, yeah. with, with, with $75 million, I could take control of a moderately sized Texas city. Like, yeah, that is like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you could buy a big chunk of Texas. <laughs> yeah, for yeah, like, <laughs> you, you could purchase a large chunk of Fort Worth with that much money. No. Yeah. Um, That's our goal here at Cool Zone Media. Yeah. Yeah. To own Fort Worth. Finally, my dream yeah. completed. I'll <laughs> yeah, be able to. Probably, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to buy those horse statues at Las Colinas. <laughs> Finally be happy. Let's um, get Blucifer as well. It's probably a good time to pivot to ads that, that help us pay for our piece of Fort Worth. Sure. Yeah, you know who isn't a waste of money? These fucking ads. So, overall, we just talked about, you know, Beto raised $77 million. The gubernatorial race cost in total something like $140 million, um, which is an, an, a huge amount of money for something that fails that badly and doesn't, there's no evidence that Beto's campaign, like, he was. he's obviously good at fundraising, right? Um, and there was kind of this belief among a lot of Dems, an errant belief, that this meant that he would be good for down-ballot races, right? He's going to bring the entire – because of how much attention he gets, he's going to raise the entire Democratic Party up. The poor showing of the Democratic Party in Texas in 2022 suggests that that's not the case. And the money – like there are there are fights that could have been won and probably weren't because the money wasn't being invested in, uh, in those fights. It was going to Beto. And I want to quote from an article by the Texas Tribune here. 
This year, the party ran Rochelle Garza, a civil rights lawyer with little political experience, against Attorney General Ken Paxton, who was widely seen as the most vulnerable Republican incumbent. But Garza struggled to raise money or gain traction in O'Rourke's shadow, and lost by 10 percentage points against Paxton, who has been indicted on felony security fraud charges and is being investigated by the <laughs> FBI for abuse of office accusations. And it, like, it's what maybe she Amazing. couldn't have won no matter what you did. But one of the rules of politics in this country is that the money you spend at a big race, like a gubernatorial race, like a like a, a like a Senate or a congressional campaign at the at the federal level, like a presidential campaign, goes less far per dollar than the money you spend in smaller local elections. Right, ten million bucks going into that election might have done something, you know, as opposed to seventy five million going into Beto O'Rourke and and accomplishing very little. This has been. Not just a problem in Texas, in pre- previous elections throughout the yeah. Trump area and a little before in particular, this was a problem the Dems had kind of from the middle of the Obama years until the last couple of like really the last midterm. Like, 2018 is when it started to turn around nationally. And the Dems have learned a lot in other regions about like not spending stupid amounts of money on hopeless uh, contests, um, but not like comprehensively. So for example, in 2022, the second most expensive house race was the 14th Congressional District of Georgia, where Marcus Flowers raised $16 million and lost by 32 points. Um, not not a great return on the investment. Um, and it was like the reason why he raised so much money is because he was running against Marjorie Taylor Greene. And nationally, Dems outside of Georgia wanted to put in money because they hate her. And it's a trend that relies a lot on social media on kind of the way in which like hardcore dims, the dims that do a lot of the small dollar donations, um, think about politics where it's like Marjorie Taylor Greene, bad, donate money to opponent. Well, her opponent had no chance yeah. of winning in that district. Like no amount of money would have flipped that. And you just wasted $16 million that could have helped somewhere else. Like maybe that's an yeah. insane thing. And it, it it's not as bad as it used. If you want to look at like the like the kind of the dumbest it ever was, uh in 2020, uh so Lindsey Graham's seat was up in South Carolina. Oh my um, god. And Jamie Harrison ran against Lindsey Graham and Dims again because <laughs> Lindsey Graham evil, you know, raised 130 million dollars and he lost by 10 Jesus points. Uh Amy McGrath lost oh. to Mitch McConnell who is another like you can always get a shitload of money to fight Mitch McConnell. 94 million dollars lost by 20 points. Um either of the di- like 130 million 94 million, that's two state legislatures. You could have flipped or at least made progress on flipping, right? Like that amount of money could potentially do that or at least help set up, you know, get a couple of people elected who have a chance at kind of broadening a base of support and becoming, you know, leaders in states that are currently like dominated by red legislatures. Like there's a chance at least here. And that like specifically the state legislature thing is, this has been a problem with the Democrats for fucking ages, which is that they just- Like, it is only genuinely in the last two years the Democrats have started giving a shit yep. about state legislatures. Like, and this is, this is one of the things from the Obama era. Like, one of the reasons everything sucks so much is that the Democrats managed to lose, like, oh, God. It was like, they, I think it, I think the total yeah. number, they lost like a thousand seats. Yeah, it was like it, a nightmarish and failure. Like, yeah. Yeah. The, and, 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 you know, and the, the, you know, we were seeing the product of this, right? Like, this, yeah. like, like, Wisconsin was sort of just a hellhole for the last decade. Uh, and you know, I mean, like, and these are like Minnesota too. Like, like lo- there are lots of these states that, like, 
Or not, sorry, not Minnesota. What am I talking about? Michigan. Yeah, yeah Michigan. Yeah, and there's, like there's a lot of these states, and you know, like, and both of these places were winnable, right? Like, like the like the Democrats are winning there now, right? But they just like fucking left, like, you know, they 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 fucking left Flint to get poisoned by lead because yeah. they just not like the only the only things. The problem is there's there's no money for consultants in in sort of like down ballot like state and like local races, yeah. just just jack shit, right? And the Democrat, yeah, the Democratic Party like is not run by sort of like it's it's not a party in like an actual real sense it is a it is a collection of consultants and those consultants only care about senator about senate races sometimes they care about house races and they care specifically they spend all of their fucking money on presidential races and you know it's yeah. like and the republicans don't do that because they have a bunch of like people they you know because they, they have a bunch of like part of their base right is these like small and mid-scale capitalists in you know in cities and in rural areas who have like immediate concerns about like you know there's like there there are specific workers who they want like lives to be worse and so yeah, because of yeah. that the republican machine is like seize the entire fucking country and the democrats yeah. have been sitting around like spending like a trillion dollars on wendy davis losing by 20 points yeah yeah and it's like you get these um you get these like cases where you know, you're looking at 30 million being spent, you know, failing to to unseat uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene or something like 33 million, something like that. Um, but uh, what you don't like at the same time as like that's happening is all of these massive amounts of money are being devoted to these like to, to the races that get attention because there's famous names involved. You have like in 2020, I think it was you have um, or no, it was 2022. You have uh, the election between Ted Budd. Uh, a, a Republican against the Democrat Sherry Beasley in North Carolina, uh, where the Democratic Party uh, decided not to prioritize this election because it wasn't winnable. Um, and then mm-hmm. Bud won up, wound up winning by just four points. That's a seat you could flip with money. That's yeah. that's not that's not an unreasonable thing, as opposed to, again, the races where it went to and people are losing by like 30 something fucking percent. And one, if you want to know who a serious candidate is who is not just trying to do the sexy thing or not just trying to like again flip the state so that we can win the federal election but actually wants to help their state and this is again there's very nice things about beto o'rourke i i was in texas during the ice storm he did good work during the ice storm like actual like community defense kind of stuff that i i I do have some respect for he is not and has never been a serious politician and i will tell you why he went from winning an election to losing a state election against Ted Cruz, to losing uh, a presidential race, to losing the governor's seat. That is so fucking scattershot. That is not building a base of power. That is not building from the ground up and like encouraging the growth of other personalities. You're just darting from whatever the sexiest and most like PR-driven race is. That's not serious. I want to talk about what, number one, the Democratic Party, the shit that like, as we've said, they're getting better. The National Party got a lot better at this, particularly in 2022. It was less stupid than the previous couple of elections yeah. had been. Which, really yeah. difficult to be more dumb than that, but you know. It yeah. is. Yeah. See, see, British, yeah. see British labor, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Israeli labor actually is the big one. Yeah. Oh my fucking but, God. No, but British I, labor I, taking some. <laughs> I want to talk really. about what has, what has worked and what I think could work again. Uh, And to do that, I'm going to talk about a guy named Howard Dean. Who here knows who Howard Dean was? Uh, Garrison? Sadly. Yeah. 
Yeah, a little bit. Have you have you all heard the video of him screaming that got yeah. him like <laughs> yeah, destroyed yeah, yeah. His, his career? So I have before. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, so, w- w- James, would you load that up for us so we can play that in a second? Yeah, let's do the Dean. So, yeah. Howard, Jamie, Howard, Jamie, pull that shit up. Yeah, <laughs> Howard, Howard <laughs> Dean ran ran for president and was he was the first national political candidate to use the internet effectively to raise money in the in the history of US politics. Um, he's kind of pre-Obama, worked out a lot of the strategies that Obama's people wound up using to very successfully raise money for him. He was really good at it. Um, he was a reasonably intelligent candidate. And then he gave the speech that we're about to play for you, and it completely yeah. cratered his in, – ended him <laughs> as, a, as a candidate. He, you know, yeah. I would say the thing about Dean – Dean is stunningly unlucky that he ran in the time that he did. Yeah. Because the, the the clip you're about to hear is 1,000 times less weird than anything DeSantis has ever done. Like he 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 ran in an I mean I, I, there was there was Dan Quayle right but like he ran in an era where like the seriousness and like non weirdness of politicians was so much higher. Mia, it's in the chat, so you can. Uh, Mia, pull that shit up. Get, get, this is a good get shit. Straight to that beautiful scream. We're going to South Carolina and Oklahoma and Arizona and North Dakota and New Mexico. And we're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. (laughs) That's it. That ended his career (laughs) as a a candidate. Yeah. (laughs) And like, it's it's a little silly, but that that doesn't that doesn't that 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 wouldn't be a a 12 second news cycle today. Um, No. But after kind of failing out as a presidential candidate, he became chairman of the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, and he Mm -hmm. was a pretty good one. Um, His his kind of primary strategic vision was what he called the 50-state strategy, um, which is don't focus just on swing states, never write a state off at unwinnable. Instead, spread the money that the DNC has around to campaign throughout the country, everywhere, particularly to fund local DNCs so that they can start building a stable of candidates that can attract voters and eventually win local elections. Um, it's not like an easy, it's not a sexy strategy because a lot of it is focused on like the slow kind of grueling fight to build up a base of support and unfriendly terrain um but it worked like really well actually um in 20 or so states uh those that had voted solidly republican in previous recent presidential races democratic candidates like won elections that had previously like in the like gone against them um like it had like it there were about like 20 states where it the the kind of slide to red was arrested and pushed back to blue. Um, these are Alabama, Alaska, Arkansas, Georgia, Idaho, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Um, yeah, you're supposed and, to scream when you do the the list. Of yeah, hey! <laughs> there we go. Uh, so basically, Dean's strategy led to a net gain of 39 state house seats uh, and a two percent increase of all seats in the states analyzed. Um, they lost two, you know, state senate seats net, but it, it worked great in the house. Um, and uh, like gained an attorney generalship, gained three house seats, gained a senate seat. 
Um, and in 15 of the 20 states, the Democratic nominee saw an increase in vote share between 2004 and 2008, which was the years that, that, that... So again, not super sexy. These aren't like, we flipped Texas suddenly, but it's like, oh, we started to see real gains in like a lot of pretty red states. Um, now, it didn't work everywhere. It was not particularly successful in a large chunk of the South. Like, it did not arrest the slide into the red everywhere. But in a lot of the Midwest, particularly the states that were like the Hillary Clinton's so-called firewall that went for Trump in 2020, um, it was uh, extremely effective. And of course, it got nixed immediately after Obama won election. And this is a big part of why in 2010, the Dems lost disastrously. But like, the basic idea of... We should be putting money into local Democratic parties in order to, like, number one, have, like, a big part of winning, you know, any any conflict, whether it's a war or a political election, is having the resources available, reserves, to take advantage of op opportunities that present themselves in the moment. So you have a solidly red state house seat. Uh, or judgeship or something like that, or, or governorship or, or mayorality, mayorality, and a candidate has uh, a health scare or has a scandal, you know, they get caught fucking a 13-year-old or something, and suddenly <laughs> this seat that was solidly red is in play, and if you have no one who can, like, get votes, who can get voters excited, who can run for that— well, then you're probably not going to win it. It's just going to like go to whoever the RNC, you know, picks to, to to pick up the seat next. But if you've got someone waiting in the wings, they have a chance at winning it. And a good example of this is what just happened in Jacksonville, Florida, right? You have DeSantis make go like lunge to the fucking most fascist end of the right and pass this abortion bill that something like 75% of the state doesn't like. Um, and the Dems had a, a decent candidate there that was able to run against the Republican mayor of Jacksonville and win. And in that election, the Dems spent $2 million and the Republicans spent $9 million. You are not talking about the kind of resources expended that you're seeing in some of these dumb races we're talking about. So – Anyway, like th this is most of what I wanted to get into is just like you can win and you can improve things in Texas and you can build a base from which to actually change things electorally in that state. But you can't do it by just like focusing on whoever is at the top. Like it has to be smarter. It's not just about shoveling money into a pit. Yeah. And like I, I think yeah. there's, there's a couple of things I wanted to add. One was that like. Oh, God. OK. Like so Tim K. Yeah, Tim Kaine got put in after they ran out Dean, and I Jesus, like Tim Kaine might yeah. be is a is like a once in a generation terrible politician, like one of the worst. <laughs> like yeah. you know, but like like you you would see shit. Like he this is, is, part he of the, is the Winston Churchill of making me bored. Like yeah, like I he <laughs> and like like you would see. Shit. I mean, and this still happens, right? But like there are there are seats that are winnable. That the Dems, like, just literally won't even bother finding people to run for because they're just fucking too lazy and they don't give a shit. And, you know, this this happens this happens in a fucking lot of races. And, you know, and par part of the other thing that, that happens in this sort of period that, like, you know, is, is the reason why the top down. This, okay, so this is, like, if, if, we're, if we're gonna actually do this sort of, like, complicated electoralism thing, like, this is why Bernie Sanders lost two elections in a row, is that you can't actually, like... Like actual sort of like substantive political change, like doesn't happen from the top down. It it's it's like it happens on bottom up organizing. And you know the, the 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 democratic waves in like the last two years were basically like them eating actual social movements. It's you know like they it's it's them basically like there there there's a sort of rejuvenated anti-abortion movement that they just sort of consume. 
right? They've been doing a very, very good job of sort of like eating like whatever sort of queer rights like movements exist alive. And they had kind of stopped doing that for a while because they chose to just like destroy Occupy whether, rather than like try to co-opt it. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, there were there were reasons for that. Right. But. Like part of part of the thing, like if, if you if if you are a Democrat and you want to actually like win Texas, you need to have like actual you need to have actual sort of social movements that you know, the Democrats can eventually take over and destroy. But in, 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 in the time between they destroy them, destroying them and them and, you know, like like in the brief time while they both exist and are controlled by Democratic Party, that's how you actually sort of like build the kinds of the build the kinds of coalitions and build the kinds of organization that win these races. And the Democratic Party has just no interest in doing that, like almost anywhere, basically outside of Minnesota, where I don't know those <laughs> the Minnesota Dems are fucking built different. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't have another explanation for that. But like, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, it, it's like, it, like one of the things that you have the opportunity to do at the local level is, and this is, you know, this is a big factor in like uh, politics in Georgia. You've got people who are motivated because of a, a specific political issue that the Dems are strong on, like abortion. Um, and you can you can get people registered. You can get people out organizing. You can get people donating money, and more most importantly, you can get people voting um, and voting in numbers that they haven't before. And 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 make if you're able to kind of harness that sort of thing. But being able to harness that again, part of it is is and this is not sexy. This is not something we can say this is going to flip a state in 2024. But putting in the money and the resources to have people who are being supported to go out and make attempts and to build like a reputation and a base of support and networks in the state like that's that's the non-sexy thing that that the number one the republicans are really good at if you're asking yourself looking at all these horrible anti-trans bills anti-gay bills um anti-abortion bills how do they do this well because churches organized at the local level to build up the kind of support and the kind of human infrastructure that allowed them to take advantage of the kind of broader social trends that drove some of those states more deeply red, um, and that kind of like made made it possible for them to do things that ten years before people had said like there's no way to make this happen. That can yeah. work on the left side of things, but you have to have the groundwork in. They started yeah. with like school boards. They, they yeah. They started they started with going after school boards, going after books. Then you get a base of people riled up. Then you can go after healthcare for minors. Then you can go after healthcare for for adults. It was a very easy path, and it started by like going to the most accessible places to have public comment on issues, which was complaining <laughs> about books inside of school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And another thing I'd say about the church thing is like the the thing that used to do that for the Democrats was unions, but then they destroyed them all. And but you know but like you can actually you can actually see what this looks like like in in the places where some stuff like this this is why the state level Midwest Dems are so much further to the left than the Dems everywhere else because like the people of Minnesota the people in Wisconsin are like the only the only reason they're even sort of remotely in power is because and you know you're seeing this like at, at like in Chicago too with uh, uh, Brandon Johnson is that like the, the those those people are like functionally dependent on like the, their on, on their teachers unions to exist as like a political coalition yeah and so and you know like and like, like union organizing is a is a like we're just like, like fucking just giving money to a strike fund is a even even if the thing that you want to do is win elections that is a more effective way of winning of winning elections than fucking giving money to beto o'rourke like a seventh time yeah 
Um, and I, again, when we, uh, the thing I want to get across here is um, the right thing to do is not say, and no one is suggesting this here. Fuck Texas, it can never be fixed. the The right thing is saying, if you're focused on one famous guy running in Texas or the, this like top level thing of flipping Texas, you don't actually care all that much about the problems being faced by people in Texas because that's not really going to fix them, right? Beto's not going to win. And even if Texas flips for an election, that doesn't mean the state legislature flips. It doesn't mean the governor flips. It doesn't mean that things get better for people. Doing these kind of bottom-up approaches, number one, will eventually flip the fucking state, right? There, There is yeah. a demographic trend happening. Um, part of how you flip the state, by the way, if you're actually responsible, is like proving that you can make people's lives better. Um if you want to flip the state, that's maybe more ethical than just being like, what if we dump $170 million to like try to make this guy who who goes viral on, on YouTube or Twitter sometimes look better, right? Maybe one of yeah. those is more ethical than the other. Anyway, I don't yeah. want to rant about electoralism anymore, but as, yeah, a, yeah. as a transplanted <laughs> Texan, I yeah. get frustrated by this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I felt like we had to say something. Yeah, I also get frustrated by Beto O'Rourke claiming to be punk, which is... Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, the least punk God. thing in the fucking well. That's another no, episode. No, we we have we have yeah. one poli- we have one elected leader who's gotten anywhere close to being punk, uh, and it was Bernie mm. Sanders when he when he got into that cold book depository that November morning with a Manlicker Carcano <laughs> rifle. Extremely punk. Um, anyway, <laughs> cutting the feed here. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. 
That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, it could happen here. A podcast where I just made my colleagues, I can see them through the Zoom, deeply uncomfortable by opening this podcast with 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 a sound that you shouldn't make in the workplace. I'm Robert Evans. Uh, joining me today is uh, is Mia Wong and Garrison Davis. Uh, Mia, take it from here. Oh, boy. So it's been a... You know, this is... Okay, so this, I guess, is now, like, last week's Twitter thing, but... This is, uh, okay, this so is we, also not... This is this is, this is is not a Twitter thing. This no, is well, very, it kind of is. It kind of is, but, like... like so let's, 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 not, let's not frame this as a Twitter thing. Yeah, okay, okay. So why... This, this is... We, we are... Okay, we, we have been experiencing in the last, you know, like, half decade... Actually, longer than that. Oh, God, it's, like, seven, eight years now, like... The, the sort of incredible rise in casual American anti-Semitism and the level of anti-Semitism that you can just do in in sort of public discourse and it's quote-unquote fine. And one of the sort of biggest indicators of this is the, like, the, the extent to which it's now socially acceptable to just do the most, like, absolutely, like, unhinged like anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about George Soros. And specifically the thing that specifically was like, okay, I need to do this episode was last week. Elon Musk like (laughs) compared George Soros to Magneto and then said, quote, you assume they are good intentions. They are not. He wants to erode the fabric, the very fabric of civilization. Soros hates humanity. And this is just like the mainstream line of the Republican party. Now, like they just all do this. You can just sort of, I mean, and, and this is and honestly like as, as bad, like, you know, this is like the, the, the stuff that Elon Musk is saying is unbelievably unacceptable. That's not even anywhere near as bad as it goes. Like, it's, it's pretty common to just hear these people like talking about the Satan Soros agenda and shit now. Like it's it has gotten unbelievably unfathomably out of control. And so today I, I wanted to take a look at, OK, who George Soros actually is like the real human being and not the sort of like caricature projection that has been created of him on the right. And I wanted to also sort of look at why the right hates him so much. And, you know, Soros is kind of an interesting figure because he falls like right in the middle of like our two shows about people because he's not he's not really like a cool person. He does cool stuff, though he does stuff that's cool sometimes, but he's not also like a bastard properly. So, Although he's done some bastardy stuff too. Oh, he has. Yeah. We are going yeah. to talk about that. that, he's, that a, is, he's, uh, a, he's a yeah. I mean, most of what this he, episode is about. He's. I, I would say he's like twenty percent more complicated than the average billionaire on a on a moral. Yeah, 
I mean, I, that's fair. I, I, I think I think like twenty or thirty percent. Yeah, there's some, a, some, there's somewhere a, in that neighborhood. Yeah, you know, and I I think there's three George Soroses. Two of them are real, and one of them is fake. There is, you know, so George Soros is a a billionaire philanthropist, right? And you know, so that means that he has a sort of billionaire side and a philanthropist side, and they are very often working across purposes. Sometimes they're not working. Sometimes they're he aligns them together. Sometimes he doesn't. And so the way I've sort of structured this is like the first episode, we're going to be talking about the sort of billionaire side and how he did that. And the second episode is going to be more about the philanthropist side and how both of these basically have been kind of accidentally structured in such a way that the right was like, oh, my God, this is the perfect guy to do anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about. And then there's also the, 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 the third George Soros is like the one who's just literally the devil who the Republicans have made up and yeah so george soros uh was born to a jewish family in hungary in 1930 which is not not a good time to be born to a jewish family in hungary no um, <laughs> yeah. really there's not a good time to be born to a jewish family in hungary until like i'm gonna get i'm gonna say sometime in the 50s yeah i, I you know it, i i will say that it, it gets way like it it is way worse when he is born than it was in like even like the 1890s, which is like not a great time, but it's gotten significantly worse. He is 14 when the Nazis invade Hungary in 1944. And this is the point at which we get to our first Soros conspiracy, which is that there's this there's this yeah, it's thing a little more complicated than it's not really the Nazis. In, well, it's it's a little yeah. more complex than yeah. The Nazis I, I, invading, I, I, I don't, you, when the when the extermination of the Hungarian Jewish community begins, really in in, in 1944. Yeah, yeah, and so th- there there's a thing that happens. I don't know. He he and his dad have a kind of complicated, like, set of things they survive. And there, there, there's a part of the story that gets picked up by the right that gets – if you've ever heard Alex Jones talk about Soros, the, like the, the second or third thing he, he will say is that like Soros is a Nazi collaborator. It was like a willing collaborator with the Nazis, yeah. which is not true. And also like he's 14. Like, you yeah, know, but, but, like, like, but, but I, I don't not. I don't really call even like 14 year olds in the Hitler youth willing collaborators because they're children. Like, yeah, you, you have it, to have a line at some point. Yeah, Even with and, and, Nazis, where if they're kids, they're not really morally responsible either way. Yeah, and like, yeah. you know, so the specific thing that he does is there's these notices that are sent out by the government that's like telling Jewish people to like go like to a place. And if you go to the place, you're going to get rounded up and killed. And basically, so the thing that actually happened is that so, so George Soros' dad is is told to do this and he gives it to George Soros and is like, go tell these people that, that they've been called for this and that if they go, they're like, they're going to get taken away. And this has been transformed by, you know, this that is this is a, a nightmarish thing. These people are surviving. This has been transformed by a bunch of the worst people who have ever lived into Nazi collaboration, which is also, you know, the, the part of the story that never gets told, even even when people sort of like do the like dive into like, oh, this is fake, is that the, the, the thing that like Soros's family spends the rest of the war doing is basically getting like counterfeit papers to Jewish families that like says that they're Christian. And, you know, they, they like, they, they legitimately save a bunch of families from dying in the yeah. Holocaust. And yeah, you know, the, the shit that Jones pulls on them is like part of this because of like the job, this guy who's like saving young George Soros has involves like 
basically like itemizing stuff left behind by Jewish families forced out of their homes. He's like, they were profiting off of the holidays. No, they were like doing whatever job kept them under the radar while they attempted to help. Like it was yeah. the Holocaust. It was messy. Yeah. And, but like, it's, you know, it, like, it's a little sorry. like saying like Oscar Schindler took advantage of slave labor. It's like, well, no, it's actually what Schindler was doing is, <laughs> was not that. Yeah. Like he was using the trappings of this slave labor system in order to rescue people. It's quite different from just enslaving people. Yeah, yeah. And I, th- I think the thing that's really disturbing about this, though, right, is like, OK, like this is like Alex Jones is Alex Jones, right? He's just going to say the worst shit you've ever heard. But yeah. like this is like a thing that mainstream right wingers just say now. Yeah. And it's just like, unbelievably horrible and it sucks and it's just like not true. But fortunately for George Soros, like, his family makes it through the Holocaust. Um, Well, his immediate family does. And they like get out. And they end up in the U.S. And this is where okay, this is something. This is something that I think is is very important to the story that isn't told very much. So Soros is like a finance whiz, right? He is very, very, very good at finance. And we're going to be talking a bit about like how, like the things that he figured out to let him do this because it's interesting. But he's also not from the sort of like American or the British financial elite. Like if I don't. Like, there, there's like a certain kind of person, right, who like goes into finance and, you know, it's like 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 wasp frat bros or like inbred British aristocrats. Right. And George Soros is like a is a Hungarian immigrant. Right. He he is not sort of from these people. He is like. And, and you know, th- this is this is going to be a, a really big deal when he like goes up against the British financial elite later on. But, you know, he 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 through sort of like he's able to turn like a job doing door to door salesman into like a way into a firm. And he's able to sort of work his way up to a point where like he has he suddenly like has his own hedge fund. And he is really, really good at this. He's he's one of the sort of early people who does hedge funds. There's a great book called The Influence of Soros, Politics, Power and the Struggle for an Open Society. Uh, by Emily Tamkin, who did a lot of really great work, like interviewed Soros, interviewed an enormous number of the people who were around him. Uh, and I, I want to read a passage of this about like how he figured out how to sort of beat the market. Um, he's talking about uh, this guy named Karl Popper, who's like a philosopher of science, who also wrote this book called The Open Society that we'll talk about next episode more. Popper's philosophy made me more sensitive to the role of misconceptions in financial markets, Soros said decades later. People believe that markets don't lie and, shouldn't be, and should be trusted, but that isn't true, Soros knew. Markets react to humans, and humans are fallible. Instead of looking at the money being made, or as Sebastian Malaby put it in More Money Than God, his book on the history of hedge funds, the psychology that drove investors' appetites, Soros looked at how one impacted the other, predicting that each would drive the other forward until the trusts were so completely overvalued that a crash was inevitable. And this is this is really smart. Like if if you even today, right? If, you know, if 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 you're able to understand that, you know, like uh, the the way a lot of hedge fund people tend to think about the market is as like the mar- you know, especially in this period is this is this sort of dogmatic neoliberal thing of like the market is like a perfect conveyance of price signals. And Soros is like, no, it's made out of people. And those people like get greedy. They they have emotional stuff. They like they 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 get into these like FOMO, like fear of missing out stuff. 
you know, they, they like intensely overvalue assets because everyone else sees that the assets like expensive. And so everyone like, you know, rushes to buy it. And like, this is something like, like even now, right? This is, this is like a very smart way to understand finance. He's figured this out in like the seventies. And if you, if you, if you're able to do this kind of stuff and like use this to understand how the market works in the seventies, you are going to look like a God among men. And he starts a hedge fund in 1973. And by, by 1981, he has a fund that is worth $381 million in like 1981 money. I don't know what that is in modern money, but it, assume it's a lot. I, I, I'm a hack and a fraud. I should have actually figured this out. Yeah, but. no, that's, that's like a billion dollars. Yeah. And like he, he personally is like has like for himself, like a hundred million dollars. Right. And he, you know, th- at this point, he starts to become sort of very famous in, in finance circles because, you know, I mean, he's just like absolutely destroying the market. Now. Okay, and this is where things get, you know, up until this point, he's kind of like, he's been doing a lot of sort of finance stuff that's kind of shady, but it's mostly just been him, like, ripping off other finance people, which I'm entirely okay with. Like, that's just very funny. Um, But he starts to get into currency speculation. And in 1985, he has one of his big breaks, which is he predicts the Plaza Accords. Now, okay, the Plaza Accord is something we've talked about on the show before. But I need to talk about it a bit more because, unfortunately, it's we have to talk about the Asian financial collapse this episode. And this is a like one of the key moments of the Asian financial collapse, even though it was like a decade earlier. So in, in, in 1985, Ronald Reagan is trying to, like, revive the U.S.'s domestic manufacturing industry because it's like dying. And, you know, and the, the reason part of the like a big part of the reason is dying is that they're getting absolutely destroyed by sort of German and like West German and Japanese manufacturers. And part of what's happening here is that particularly Japan's currencies are worth way currency is worth way less than the dollar. This is called having a weak currency. And having a weak currency is really good for if you if you have like an export-based manufacturing economy. And so Reagan basically like walks into a meeting with like the Germans, the Japanese government, the British, and like a few other people, and just basically just like not quite in so many words, but basically just says, like, you are all American military protectorates. Uh, and because you're all American military protectorates, like, I can I can force you to increase the value of your currency, like, or else, capital O, capital E. And they do. They they comply. And this is this this becomes this is a thing called the Plaza Accords. Um, and this this, you know, weakens the value of the dollar versus a bunch of other currencies. And this, like, literally single handedly, like, restores the profitability of American manufacturing, like, through the 90s. Which is really wild, but the 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 the, the other the, the important thing for this story is that I I I don't know how he did this, but like George Soros predicts that this is going to happen, and he makes an unbelievable amount of money, basically like no no like basically doing currency speculation because he knows what like currencies are going to increase in value, which you know he knows that like uh for example like he he knows that like the the Japanese yen is going to increase in value, so he makes an enormous amount of money doing this stuff and he gets very famous for like he'll like make a bunch of money and then he'll lose it again and then he'll make it again and this all culminates in okay so there there okay he he starts taking ah truly enormous bets like against national currencies and there's one of these that's just funny and there's one of these that's really bad so we're gonna do the funny one first 
which is so in 1992, Soros, and this is the other part that Devergus talked about, is like it's not just Soros doing this stuff. He has like allies because like as big as Soros is for him is, right? He can't the 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 him and his allies are gonna take a fifteen billion dollar short position on the pound. And even he doesn't have like nobody like like this is like fifteen billion of nineteen nineties money, right? Like you need a bunch of firms working together in order to do this. But he basically takes this massive bet that the pound is going to go down, and because of the way that these these bets work, like the actual value of the pound like collapses, and the the British central bank like tr- it, like doesn't have enough. And the reason they're able to do this is they figure out that the British central bank doesn't have enough money to stop them. Like they don't have enough money to like maintain, like they don't have enough reserves to like maintain the value of the pound. And so he gets like completely blamed for this, even though, again, there's like other people involved in this. Right. Like the the, the front page of the Daily Mail is literally his face in the title. I made a billion crashing the pound based. Which is I. OK, so like on an anti-British level, this is very funny. Um, it's. No, so there's a bunch of arguments about, like, what does this mean for, like, the world economy and for national sovereignty? Soros thinks that, like, currency speculation is a necessary evil, and he he has this sort of... It's easy to think that when you're making that much money. Yeah, right. You know, it's like... (laughs) Now, okay, this, this, like, specific thing, which is, like... A a a a bank a banker comes in and is able to manipulate the value of a currency. This is like, this is like, absolutely like. Th- th- this is the fodder for like the absolute most paranoid fantasies of the anti-Semitic right. Like it's this sort of like rootless cosmopolitan banker like attacks the good and righteous like noble people of Britain thing. And, th- and this is how it gets framed in the press who are like, the press is, I mean, it's the British press, right? Like the British are not known for, you know, not being anti-Semitic. And so they just like go wild with this. But, you know, like this particular thing is doing against the British. Part of what's happening here, right, is there's this sort of, there's this kind of like national populist equation thing going on here where there's this assumption that like the bank of Brit- like the bank like the, the 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 British central bank is like an entity that is identifiable with like an ordinary person in Britain and like no like the the, Brit- the British central bank is run by just unbelievably inbred aristocrats right and you know and pr- hey pr- i think of- they're pretty believably inbred oh that's fair <laughs> yeah <laughs> we're, we're we're just talking about like um like point five six of a Habsburg unit you know a ha- a ha- the Habsburg is the international unit for measuring how inbred someone is if you're if you're unaware I yeah yeah that that that, that, seems, that seems like a reasonable amount of inbred for these specific people mm-hmm. but you know like but this is what I was talking about like at the, at the very beginning I was talking about sort of like Soros not being from this sort of like normal class of of finance people and the, th- the thing is, like, the normal class of finance people are fucking terrible at their jobs, right? Like, these, these inbred British aristocrats and, like, the, the fucking American, like, cocaine frat boys, like, do, like just, like, doing lines of cocaine off each other's ass cracks. Like, these people all suck at their jobs, and George Soros is, like, smart and is good at his job. And so he just, like, absolutely goes through these people like a fucking flaming chainsaw. And she just like, you know, and the, 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 the maneuvers that he's doing here, he just, like, absolutely humiliates all of the people at the at the at the, the, the British Central Bank, he's humiliating like and not just those guys, too. He's humiliating the Tories. He's humiliating like all of the people who are seriously important in the real economy, in, in, in the sort of real British economy. 
And he can do this, right? Because like his his opponents are, you know, people who are like they're they're, they're promoting their like they're, they're, they're okay they they take in like their people from college, right? And they're promoting them based off how good they are at golf. And so when when she just sort of like like walks in and just makes it like makes like billions of dollars just like destroying these people, he makes just a permanent enemy of a very very powerful like faction of the British ruling class. And the British ruling class, like, I don't know, they, they, it, it, it is hard to find people who will beat the British ruling class in an anti-Semitism off. And this is, this is one of the things that sort of, you know, if, if you're looking at like why Soros specifically is the guy who all of these sort of right-wing conspiracies wind up being about, like part of it is because he pisses off these specific people. Yeah, these guys whose like dads were all friends with the King of England who was like a close personal buddy with Hitler. Like they're it's yeah. it's a bunch of like it's a bunch of guys who are already pretty bigoted and then they get beaten at their own stupid financial game. And so like the fact that it's a Jewish dude who does it means that they're going to be even more racist than they already were. And the fact that there's plenty of uh uh international anti Semitism and that George Soros, after this, starts funding liberal and and you know vaguely progressive causes. Like, yeah, it's not. This is not a. It's not surprising that this is the way things went. Yeah, and and you know, and, and again, like I I can't underemphasize the extent to which this is also very specifically the reaction to the British media class. Who I mean, we know now that those people are psychos. Like, we 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 have seen them see a trans person in a boat race. And like like 10 years ago and like like draw a giant thing circling them in a boat and making it a front page news story. Those people in the 90s well, that's, were that's like true. they they are biologic but biologically better at navigation. <laughs> that is that has actually been been proven. Yeah, but they're, they're, they're by, like by just science. as they're, they're, they're just as sort of feral and like terrifyingly bigoted then as they are now. And, and this means that like like. Just if you're a regular British person and you are like walking down the street and there's a newspaper stand, you are seeing like, like truly unbelievably terrifying anti-Semitic shit, like just literally everywhere. And this this will have no consequences whatsoever. Uh, Yeah, it's all good. Nothing bad ever happens. And uh, speaking of no consequences, I would you you know what we can promise about about. Products 20, and services. Twenty three minutes in, <laughs> you know. Look, you're welcome, Daniel. <laughs> okay, we're back. We have to talk about. Okay, so the, the, the doing it to the British economy was mostly just really funny because the British economy is going to be fine, and it. it the, the funny part about him doing it to the British economy is that this actually, unfortunately, helps the British economy because it forces uh, the the British to like abandon some truly spectacularly not very good financial policy they were doing but then he does it to thailand and that is um a lot less justifiable so it it, in this this is five years later this is 1997 soros brings in some economists um Arminio Fraga, like Roddy Joes, David Klowitz. Uh, he, he brings he's bringing in people who are sort of experts in like developing market uh, economics. And that's never no one has ever brought in a developing market economist for like a good reason. 
And what they what what they realize is that they start doing analysis of Southeast Asia, like the Southeast Asian markets, and they realize very quickly that Thailand is fucked. Um, they 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 figure out that Thailand has Th- Thailand has its currency pegged to the dollar, and this, but you know, they, they don't have the reserves to support this, and the Thai the like actual Thai currency isn't strong enough to maintain like like stay being pegged to the dollar. It's it's not a strong enough currency. And so they do a two billion dollar short of 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 like Thailand's currency, and uh, I'm going to read from the influence of Soros again about like the process of this. It was a debate we had. Jones told me we'd gone to work in Asia, and here you are taking large scale short positions in countries with institutional fragility. Going for the juggler in the United Kingdom was one thing; doing the same in Thailand was another. The Bank of England would surely recover. Thailand was a developing economy, and it was unclear what impact outside investors could have. Soros had has justified speculation with the idea that it could serve as a kind of warning to, to governments. Look, Thai government, the bot needs to de- devalue. Change your policy now before a currency collapse is devastating for your people. The trouble is, the Thai government didn't do this. Instead, it spent months using Bank of Thailand reserves to buy Thai bot. When it finally ran out in early summer 1997, the value of the bot plunged 32% against the dollar and millions of people lost, uh, Thai people lost their livelihoods. The Soros Fund made $750 million. Yeah, it's a little bit like me being like, look, yes, I made a lot of money selling heroin to those middle schoolers. But really, when you think about it, it was a warning to those schools that it was too easy for me to bribe the janitor to sell heroin to kids there. You know, I was actually performing a public service. So true, Robert. It is just like that. <laughs> you know, to be fair, you know, I'm not going to have I'm not going to finish that thought. That's probably what, what for I, the best. Yeah, I, we, we need we need one person to remain uncanceled here to keep the lights on. <laughs> Oh, God. Does it have to be me? Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, legally it does. <laughs> this is really bad. Yeah. No more joking, Mia. We can't, we can't suffer any other jokes. Yes. Somebody's <laughs> got to upload this episode. <laughs> All right. Here, 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 here's the next joke. Uh, Soros actually doesn't make money off of his, speculation, off of his speculating in, in Southeast Asia because he loses basically the same amount of money uh, taking like a long position in Indonesia. Yeah, the same thing happened to me when I took a long position on doing cocaine in my bathroom <laughs> with the money that I made selling drugs to all those kids, you know? We're a lot alike, him and me. We're a lot alike. Well, okay, to be fair, to to be fair, and this is something okay, this is something I I I, I the reason I wanted to talk about this specifically is is that like okay, it, like to this day, if if you look under sort of I if 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 you, if you every once in a while someone someone there'll be a tweet that's like like what did George Soros do, and immediately there will be a bunch of people talking about how he like deliberately destroyed all of the economies in Southeast Asia, yeah, and that's not really what happened. And no, I, that I, would be for one thing too much to put on one guy fucking around with a cup. Yeah, but yeah, and I I wanted to actually kind of walk through this a little bit in depth just because. Okay, there, there's a really, really easy way to think about the economy that is bad. It leads you into anti-Semitic traps, which is like, hey, here is like one banker who wanted to make money. And because he wanted to make money, he like destroyed all these economies. And like on, on the one hand, yeah, like like Sor- Soros betting against like the Thai currency is, is bad, right? Like this is this is not a thing you should have been doing. 
on the other hand, you know, okay, so that's like the sort of level one thing. But but the thing about the, the you know, this is the sort of this is the sort of like great man anti anti-Semitism theory of collapse. And this is the theory that a lot of the sort of regional leaders take, um, you know, because and, and this and this is sort of a crucial thing, right? This position very conveniently allows them to just like not think about capitalism in general or like their role in this in this crisis, which is not insignificant. And so in order to figure out what what actually happened here, we, we need to look at so, so Soros sort of like tip like tip some dominoes, right? But the dominoes were already there and they were going like regardless, even if Soros had never existed, right? Like they were going to fall and they were going to fall because ironically of the Plaza Accords. So, you know, we, we talked about the Plaza Accords earlier. The U.S. forces Japan to increase the value of its currency relative to the dollar. Uh, OK, so this is great for the American economy. This nukes the Japanese economy. I mean, the Japanese economy, you know, and, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a bit, too. It was already kind of doing bad. When the U.S. does this and its manufacturing economy just like implodes, it it guts the Japanese economy. It has the Japanese economy has never recovered from this. It probably will never recover really in, into what it was. And, you know, the, the, the effect this has is that now now the government of Japan has to figure out how to grow their economy without having any like way to make money that grows your economy. And but and now they have a stronger currency, and so their solution is okay. What what did they they they, they, they all, all the central bank people look around at each other and they go, what is a strong currency good for? Housing speculation. And so they they start like they they start they start slashing interest rates and they start basically building an entire economy uh, based on the assumption that housing prices will always go up, and so you should just take out loans so you can buy houses because the value of the housing will. <laughs> um, because uh, you know, housing prices will always go up, so you can you can have all of these assets based on mortgages. Uh, this is this may may or may not be sounding familiar to everyone who lived in two thousand eight. Uh, and so you know, in 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 like in like nineteen eighty two, the entire Japanese economy implodes sort of again because they they literally built the two thousand eight machine, and so th- this this forces the U.S to do something called the reverse plaza accords where they 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 take the original plaza accords and they reverse it and they they increase the value of the american dollar american manufacturing dies like it's never recovered it's never coming back and this for a this kind of this stabilizes the japanese economy a little bit but it means that the u.s now no longer has a functional economy and so we do our, our solution to this is we do 2008 right we, we build an entire economy also on the Japanese model of of currency speculation, of you know, of, of like housing price speculation, speculation on like or like the rising prices of like stocks, right? We we build an economy completely made of bullshit. But you know, okay, what what does this have to do with the Asian market collapse? Okay, the, the problem is that like all of the countries in in East Asia and like Southeast Asia also do this. They also do the thing where they're like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna ba- we're okay. So our manufacturing economies are are declining, right? So we're gonna we're gonna base our entire economy on housing prices going up. And, you know, that's and it's not George Soros. That's the thing that actually destroys like the sort of. That's the thing that like that, like actually destroys all of these economies. And, you know, and I, 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 I wanted to sort of run through this and, you know, this is like a lot of like sort of econ shit. Right. But the reason I wanted to run through this is that I, I think I think it gets at the, the, the sort of truly the truly horrifying thing about how our economy works that is really difficult to face and is i think 
it's at least a part of why people really, really want there to just be one guy who is running anything, everything, whether that's the CIA, whether that's Soros, whether that's like the, the new world order. Yeah. Right. Because if there's, if there's like a guy who's doing this, right, you can stop him. But the, the, the great horror of this world is that there is no deep state, right? There is no Satanist cabal. There's no one pulling the strings at all. The only thing that is there is just sort of the cold, lifeless, and inexorable death logic of capital. And that logic is moving all of us, right? All it, You know, the, 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 the people who are doing the conspiracies, insofar as they exist, are being moved by this. All of the rulers are being moved by capital. All of us, the subjects, are being moved by capital. But that, like, sucks, Right. Like the, 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 the fact that all of these economies are destroyed, not by like the individual actions of people, but by the fact that like returns are less good in Thailand than they are in China. And this is just sort of the inexorable logic of the entire economic system we have. This is, you know, this is absolutely terrifying. And faced with this sort of reality, right, like people who want to protect capitalism because, you know, they have a bunch of assets in it. Right retreat into this sort of like they you know they 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 they, they use soros as a smokescreen for like why everything is suddenly going wrong but sort of simultaneous to this right this is also a real problem for george soros because he's like you know when he's not sort of in his role as like capital he's like not a piece of shit he's like a person who wants the world to be better and this, you know, this causes a sort of there. There was a contradiction in his ideology, right? Which is that he 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 wants the world to be a better place, and simultaneously, he's also a capitalist. And these two things are sort of warring with each other. Even as early as even as early as sort of the nineties, he's giving speeches about how, like, his open society that he wants. It's a sort of like this this liberal democratic society of like laws and norms and human rights. It the, the greatest danger to it has ceased to be communism. It's now capitalism. But he can't do anything about it because he is also a capitalist. And next episode, we are going to watch Soros, like, through his philanthropic endeavors, attempt to solve the problems that his economic system has caused and fail catastrophically and become the sort of boogeyman and the the the, the anti-Semitic specter of every conspiracy theory in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So check out that next time. Uh, and you know, if you're, uh, hanging out around Clark middle school, uh, and you have $40, uh, I can hook you up with some, uh, some of that sweet black tar. So, you know, uh, give me a ring. Uh, my phone number's posted in the show notes of every episode. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park 
That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. It's It Could Happen Here, the podcast where I attempt to wrangle jokes that are enough okay that we keep podcasting. Uh, yeah, with, with me here to wrangle Robert Evans and also Garrison Davis. Welcome. Yeah. Welcome back. My, my two uses in this series are to uh, make corrections on Hungarian history of the Holocaust <laughs> uh, and talk about selling heroin to children. Um, so proud to be here. I'm, I'm very excited. You're going to hear me complain. You, you, you're going list, to listen to me very briefly complain about Plato, a thing I did not think I was going to do when I started this. Like so, the like the the philosophy guy? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. So, all right, why why are we eventually going to talk about Plato? I uh, So, George Soros is probably best known for a foundation that he eventually funds called Open Society. That was, it was originally the Soros Foundation, then he was like, "Why am I naming this after myself?" and it changed to Open Society. Um, I'm I'm gonna read. So the Open Society is a a very sort of. Again, I gotta say, exactly twenty percent more self awareness than you get from the average billionaire. Like oh, Bill yeah. Gates is like, we'll call it the Gates Foundation. <laughs> Soros is like, we'll call it the Soros. You know, so, <laughs> wait, wait. You know, no, yeah. you know what? <laughs> well, and, and and to be fair to Soros, right? Out like, there. like Soros has Soros has a real ideology, and it it can't work, but. If it did, the world wouldn't be that bad. Unlike unlike what would happen if you let Bill Gates uh, run rampant over the earth, which is uh, the world we live in right now. So I'm going to read a little bit from the Influence of Soros again about like what the open society is. I have lived through Nazi persecution and Soviet occupation, Soros later said. Popper's book is Karl Popper. Open society and its enemies struck me with the force of revelation. It showed that fascism and communism have a lot in common, that they both stand in opposition to a different principle of social organization, the principle of open society. So, okay, I I read this and I was like, okay, so let's go, let's go, let's go read uh, Karl Popper's book, which is called The Open Society and Its Enemies. And so I I assumed, right. That's interesting. Yeah, I was also doing Popper's last night. 
you you had the superior experience with your poppers. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm assuming I had a I had a bad fucking time oh. when I read this like last week. You should have um, gotten yours from a gas station too. Yeah, no. Instead, I got it from the internet for free, which questionable results. So okay, so I I I read this book right. So this is Karl Popper is like normally a philosopher of well, he's like a scientist, right? He's most famous for like philosophy of science stuff, but he also wrote this book. And this is his critique of totalitarianism. So, okay, I'm expecting, right, it's going to be half of it's going to be about the Nazis and half of it's going to be about the communists, right? No, the first half of this book is about Plato. And the second half of this book is about Marx. But he spends like 200 pages yelling at Plato. And to be fair, everything he says about Plato and about why Plato is totalitarian is completely true. But like his conclusion about what totalitarianism is, is that totalitarianism is, is descendant. It's like the product of this thing he calls historicism, which is when like you have one thing that's the agent of history. And so he sees like, like, I don't know, like a great man or like the, the, the guy, like whatever Hegel's Geist or like one great nation or like a great class as like these are all examples of historicism and if you think about history like this you will you will, this is how totalitarianism is born and i i am incredibly skeptical of that of of the view of the way you look think about history being the origin of totalitarianism i i don't know it, it's it's a very very weird book in a lot of ways popper is trying to do this thing that like a lot of kind of liberal philosophers of that period is doing, which is that he's trying to reconcile sort of like individual freedom, but then also sort of economic egalitarianism. And, you know, okay. So if you were actually serious about doing both of these things, right? Like the, 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 the two things you care about on earth are protecting individual freedom and achieving economic egalitarianism. You have two options. You either become an anarchist and you sacrifice neither of your values, or you become a neoliberal and you sacrifice both. And Popper, unfortunately, takes the second route. And yeah, like- I feel like a lot of the um, a lot of the conflict between uh, uh, kind of like reconciling, you know, the great man theory of history with some of these other like it, it comes out of uh, an unwillingness to look at, at systems of power because the extent to which like individual weirdos and their obsessions influence uh, history is largely due to or is largely like related to the degree of power that like different systems allow uh to be invested into like individual weirdos like it's it's less a, a matter of like you've got these sort of you know in a, that kind of fascist idea you've got these sort of individuals who embody the spirit of a people and more if your system allows huge amounts of power to be invested in individual people with their weird hangups, then those weird hangups of this one guy may wind up defining history. I don't know. This is this this is an unrelated rant. Well, but. no, I, I think it is related because th- this this is sort of the core flaw of this ideology, which is that these people conclude. OK, so like they don't. OK, the 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 thing that they have to do, like Popper has to do right, because he like acknowledges that a lot of the Marxist critique is really powerful and that like it is, in fact, not very good that you have an entire class of people to like survive off of extracting like labor from another class of people. But, you know, if you accept that, right, you can't actually like defend capitalism on the merits of it being an economic system. You have to like do this like circle run around dance of like defending ideas. 
And this all gets like gets to this point where the problem that you're talking about happens, which is that like, well, okay, capitalism is also a system where one really weird guy and his like terrible ideas can have an enormous impact on how society operates. Like this is this is this is this is the thing we're all suffering from from like Elon Musk, right? Or like uh, what what's that guy's name? Uh, like Robert Moses, right? Like, yeah, like, the you know, like capitalism is absolutely a system that generates just one guy who can just fuck everyone's and entire lives. And that's a lives. perfect example of it, because like the fact that Moses has these weird personal hangups around public transportation and this love of being driven around influences how tens of millions of people live yeah. to this day and influences like the global climate crisis. Um, and so it's not like. This great man didn't like grab the lathe of heaven. It was more like, no, our, we, we, our society kind of like the system we set up allowed an enormous amount of power for this specific thing, how our cities are set up to be invested in an unelected weirdo because he was the only one interested enough to focus on it. And that led to this very bad situation. Yeah. And, and like, like, I think I think Pomper's thing that was like, well, OK, you, you, you do you deal with this by like just having elections for everyone and it's like yeah. well okay like some so sometimes you have elections yeah, we never vote and, for crazy assholes yeah, like, thank god sometimes some, sometimes sometimes you get donald trump right like i you know these these are these are these are things that are going to haunt both popper well popper doesn't live long enough to see like the absolute worst this can, this can possibly go but uh george soros unfortunately has lived to see exactly how badly this can, this can possibly mm-hmm. go but in, Let, in let's his... call him let's let's call him by his nickname from from now on uh uh, uh G Sizzle. Is that good? We're, we're, not, like that? we're not. We're not. We're not doing that. that. We're not doing no. that. Thank you. Thank you, we're Garrison. Not, we're this not is the, that. This is this is why you're this is why you're here. <laughs> you have power of attorney over what nicknames we call the the subjects of the episodes. I will I will keep it and reserve this power for <laughs> oh. See this is we are we've built a system to try and uh and stop, you know, individuals with with weird hang-ups from uh from influencing history so much. It, it's that simple, folks, you know, devolve powers. Yeah. Works mm-hmm. great. Mhm. This could work for, for the presidency. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're going to have to talk about Yugoslavia this episode, so uh, it doesn't always work. Mm-hmm. But all right, so back, back, back in, back in sort of the heady days of of the seventies and eighties, Sor- George Soros, like, okay, he has a dual thing where he at once has his kind of crisis of conscience thing, where he's like, I want to actually do something with my life that's not just. You know, I want to have an impact on the world that is positive and not like I made so much money that like gods look at it and vomit. And so and so, OK, so he, his solution is he sets up a tax dodge and he's actually very explicit about this in interviews that his first foundation to do charity work was set up as a tax dodge. Um, <laughs> and, but, but this is where Soros is very interesting, right? Because he has, you know, for for like. A billionaire, right? He has some positions that are startlingly very good. So he is anti-apartheid, and that is like not a thing you can guarantee from people in that era. Like, oh boy. Um, he also, and this is something that gets gets him in trouble like to this day, is he is pro-Palestine. And this is part of why like Netanyahu absolutely hates him. I mean, he's he's not like 
like okay, he, he's he's not not like, like a radical pro Palestine. Yeah, no, but, but, but by like, by the standards of Netanyahu, a radical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like 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 his you know his sort of like like li- his sort of like liberal humanism. Like, hey, we should not like shoot children with guns thing yeah is, is broadly anti-shooting children for yeah. throwing rocks yeah <laughs> and like like that 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 makes you a like like en- like en- enemy number one of the israeli still well yeah no i i okay i'll put them in like enemy number no the enemy number the one is those state. kids but yeah, yeah enemy he's number like number two. three or four they, they haven't yeah. whacked him yet so oh god speaking of things that the israeli government didn't do uh so he he gets his start. Oh, I thought you were going to do an ad. I also, there. I also no. thought that was going to be an ad break. Uh, I have a, don't worry, I have a better one. Um, it's coming. Oh, good. So in the 1980s, his first experience, like doing charity work, is he decides that he's going to go up against like apartheid in South Africa, and you know this is good. So he what he what he starts doing is he starts giving scholarships to black students to go to the University of Cape Town. And then he learns a very, very important lesson about neoliberalism that he's about he's going to like promptly forget after this, which is that, OK, so what actually happened, what, what he thinks is going to happen, right? What he's trying to do is he's trying to make, you know, he's trying to make sure there's more money for black kids to go to, to go to university. What actually happens is that the state uses his money to pay for the existing scholarships and stops paying for any more scholarships. And so there's two things going on here, right? One is the obvious. This is the this is the apartheid racism, right? Like they don't want more like. They don't want more non-white kids going to school. But then two, also, this is also sort of a classic neoliberal failure, which is like if, if you were if you were, when you replace the state with like billionaire philanthropists, the state simply instead of like, you know, having more of the of like the resources, the services provided, the state just stops doing it and spends more money on cops. And so he yeah, Soros very quickly realizes that like the, he he figures this out and is like I fuck this like no I'm not gonna help you like I'm not gonna help the apartheid government do racism, and so this makes him kind of weary of this stuff because he has sort of he has sort of seen how he see what happens when you when you very explicitly try to work within a system that is unbelievably fucked up which is that the apartheid government uses your money to as a way to like funnel more of their own money into their own pockets. And do you know who else uses systems of apartheid to funnel more money into their own pockets? Wow. Oh, okay. I see. I, <laughs> I, I now see what you're doing. I think wow. the last, I, th- I think the previous attempt at an ad break yeah. was actually better. I was kind of okay. Like, yeah. You know, you know, I accept criticism. Correct. That our podcasts are entirely sponsored via a time machine we used to go back to apartheid South Africa uh, and get their advertising dollars. So please keep the Krugerands flowing uh, and and purchase these products and services. I learned that Krugerands was the South African currency from the movie Lethal Weapon 2. We're back and I'm sitting uncomfortable in the knowledge that I am the only person on this Zoom call who has watched Lethal Weapon 2. Have have either of you seen any of the Lethal's weapon? <laughs> no. Unbelievable. No. <laughs> uh, you're missing maybe the best Mel Gibson performance outside of that time he got pulled over in Malibu and gave a racist <laughs> rant to those California State Highway Patrol officers. Uh, Mel Gibson. So speaking okay, of, here we go. Speaking of people who are about to give <laughs> racist rants. Okay, so the, the, the other thing about Soros and the thing that is sort of blisteringly ironic about how the sort of course of anti-Soros attacks go is that Soros is like a, a, a vehement, like 
pretty hardline anti-communist. And this is what he spends most of his time like in the 80s doing is, is you know, like give, giving money to anti-communist groups and communist countries. So he funds Solidarity in Poland, which is this like I, very mixed record. Well, we'll, we'll get this. Yeah, we don't, we don't need it. Like he's funding anti-communist causes. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. He's yeah, funding. Yeah. But, you know, he's he's funny. He's trying to fund like a very specific kind of like liberal anti-communist cause. Yeah. Right. And. You know, this this goes badly for him in a number of ways. One is that the moment like the moment the Berlin Wall falls, everyone just like suddenly forgets about all of the anti-communism that he did Uh, because, you know, and and this is something about the the, the kind of anti-communist that he is. Right. Like there's a lot of anti-communists who are like. Who are just like death squad guys. Right. Like this is your like your guy trained by Chiang Kai-shek who's like shooting peasants in like. El Salvador, right? There, there's also like another kind of anti-communist in this era who are sort of liberal anti-communists who like are anti-communists, but like also anti-Pinochet, for example. Like Soros gives some money to the the, the, the people. You know, when, when Pinochet has his big referendum of his like, should I stay in power? He gives money to the people who are like, no. And those are people who... <sighs> their intentions are better than the just like absolutely horrifying right wingers. But, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't go great for him. So Soros, his initial plan, right. Is he's going to, you know, okay. When he, when he's trying to like start funding anti-communist groups, he's going to, he's his thing is like, he was going to go into Hungary and he was going to like give Hungarian students scholarships. And the Hungarian students were like, don't do this. Like, if you if you just show up and give us money, uh, the, the state is immediately going to be able to go like, hey, you are like outside funded uh, opposition people doing like regime change stuff. And it's going to like immediately discredit us. And so this is the point where he sets up the Soros Foundation, which becomes opens. It's, it's, it, there, there's a whole thing with the, this, this. This stuff changes names like many times. The, the Open Society Foundation stuff. Yeah, yeah, and you know, un- so you know, what, what we should we should like we should talk about what they actually do because in in sort of like the I, right I mean, wing- I can tell you one thing that they do because I used to work with when I was a, a teaching classes at Bellingcat. My uh, my part my partner Giancarlo, um, he would go and teach because he's he was born and 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 for at least a period of time raised in Venezuela. Um, he would teach classes in Latin America to local journalists who wanted to know open source investigative techniques um, and who didn't have the kind of money to pay what it usually costs to do a Bellingcat thing. And that program, whereby a bunch of journalists in Latin America, particularly Colombia, uh, got training, was funded by the Open Society Foundation. Um, and so a couple of years ago, when there was that massive swelling of like the police murdering people in protest crowds yeah. and stuff in Colombia, the journalists who were like doing open source investigation to track down which police officers were, you know, killing folks and how this was going were a lot of the folks that Giancarlo had trained. Like that's, oh, the, that's really cool. the the kind of stuff that, that one of the kind of things that the Open Society Foundation does. Yeah, they also do a lot of they do a lot of like giving students scholarships. They, they, the other thing they're really big on that doesn't get talked about much is that they were huge on like cultural events, basically like, like paying people money to like put on plays and like theater stuff and music and like writing poems and books, which is like, I don't know. Like, I I actually think that's cool. Like, like we as a society used to do this. Like we used to like pay people 
Like the government used to pay people to like write things and like create art. And then we decided that that was bad and have never done it again. And yeah, I'm anti creating art for the record. That's why I'm really happy about all this AI stuff. <laughs> we can, bait, bait, yeah. bait and post. Do not engage. <laughs> <sighs> so un- un- unfortunately for the Soros Foundation, um, one of the people they give these these scholarships to is Victor Orban, which is, uh, Victor Orban. Oh, you mean, or, um, yeah, in Victor a, Orban. Yeah, 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 the Hungarian the, yeah, president so, in quotation marks. Sure, yes, yeah. we, we, we shall, we shall return to that. This is, I think, uh, maybe the single greatest example of like creating young gravedigger I've ever seen in my entire life. I, I, I don't know. Like one, one of the things that, that comes up about this, and this is, this is one of the things that, Another one of the guys who Soros backs, who like betrays him later on, says that Soros is bad at politics. Like he's just not he's like not very good at it. Like he's not, you know, people like the the sort of like thing about him is that he's this sort of like criminal mastermind who can like like bankroll revolutions and stuff. And it's, he just like gets outmaneuvered by people constantly in ways that are like kind of depressing. Um Yeah, but you know, okay, so he's spending the eighties like doing all of this, you know like doing this sort of cultural work and you know in in, in hungary right it, it, there's, there's a sort of interesting thing that happens where like he's wealthy enough that like even the communist party is you know, sort of like has to work with him because he has money and they sort of don't but the, you know the other thing that that's i think important to understand is that he's not like there's a bunch of foundations who do like exactly the same stuff right like maybe slightly worse like, you know, there's like the Ford Foundation, there's like the Rockefellers, right? Or the Rockefeller Foundation. Like they all, they all like at, at any place where open society is like doing stuff, there's like a worse version of it that the Ford Foundation and like the Rockefellers are doing. But, you know, somehow, stunningly, only one of these groups is singled out for uh, <laughs> being yelled at all the time. And I will, I will leave as an exercise to the reader why specifically they pick Soros and not Ford. Huh, huh. I wonder, I wonder what... <laughs> Big mystery. <laughs> I wonder what differences and, uh, and cultural uh, views might be at, might be at oh. play here. Yeah. So, okay, the, the other real problem that he runs into, which is a cultural problem, is that... Okay, this is the problem that all the liberal anti-communists run into, which is that... Okay, so the walls come down, right, and the communist governments fall, and it turns out that... Uh, the anti-communists in Eastern Europe are almost all right-wingers, and their base are all, like, right-wing nationalist fanatics. Um, here's another Soros quote about this. I thought I would blaze the trail, I would lead, and others would follow. But now that I look back, I find that there was practically nobody behind me. I ask myself, what went wrong? And part of what went wrong is, like, what Soros is doing in these places. So, for example, he, you know, he, he's he's involved in... Funding solidarity, he's involved in some of solidarity's negotiations with the government. And then the other thing that he does is he's one of the people who helps like do structural adjustment in Poland. And this goes really badly because so what we're talking about, okay, we should talk a little bit about what solidarity is because he helps destroy it by accident. Solidarity is this giant sort of like social democratic e union that forms in you know in, in like the early 80s. In Poland, that's like the first sort of independent union in a in one of these communist countries, and they eventually are able to sort of like knock off the government, but they they come into power, and 
you know, so they, they, they do on, on sort of Soros's advice and on the advice of a lot of the sort of financial people they're getting, right? All of the people are telling them to do privatization. So they do it, right? They privatize all of these giant state-owned like facilities. They privatize their docks, like stuff like that. And this, it turns out, uh, just causes massive deindustrialization. It destroys Solidarity's base because there's, there's suddenly no longer all of these union jobs at all of these state-owned factories. And so, you know, they lose the next election and then Solidarity like vanishes forever into the mist of time. There's like six of those guys left. Um, yeah, and, and this and this is a real sort of Soros problem This, this uh, that, that like keeps running over and over again, right? Is it, you know, he, he spent all this time being an anti-communist, but then the actual anti-communists who have bases and who aren't just like destroying their own bases by like doing privatization, which is something he, stuff he's also pushing, right, are these right-wingers. <laughs> And this is this is just sort of a fiasco. And, you know, it's so like he, he he does like he tries to do like a very similar thing to what he'd been doing in, in Eastern Europe and China. And this goes like even worse because he winds up like backing. He winds up backing one of the CCP factions who gets purged after Tiananmen. And so, you know, Soros, like as the sort of 90s go on, right, like he's kind of slowly starting to realize that, like the stuff that he's doing is not working very well. And one of the sort of, I don't know if consequence is the right word, but what, okay, one of Soros' sort of like principles that makes him different from a lot of other of these billionaires, right, is he doesn't do humanitarian aid. His thing is that like he wants to produce a society that doesn't need humanitarian aid, which is sort of noble, but like then, you, then Yugoslavia falls apart and he winds up doing a bunch of stuff in Yugoslavia. Like, he winds up building, like, a water purification plant in Sarajevo while it's under siege. And the other thing that I, I didn't know he was, like, really heavily involved with is, like, he's basically the reason why the UN War Crimes Tribunal that, like, tries Milosevic and stuff, like, happens. Like, he funds it. It wasn't really, like, a UN thing. He was, he was like, hey, we're going to have this tribunal. And then the German government, like, arrested one of the war criminals just sort of randomly at like an airport or something. And he's, he's able to convince sort of like Clinton and a bunch of other people to like actually turn and the UN to like turn this into a real court. And this pisses off a lot of people and like by, by, by a lot of people, I mean like very specifically it pisses Milosevic off because I so, somewhat obvious reasons that he's trying to try him for war crimes. Okay. So I, I think Gare, you're too young for this. Robert, do you remember rock the vote? God, oh, yes, I remember Rock the Vote. Okay, so one of the things Soros does is he does like a, a he brings like a Rock to Vote. He, he's like one of the people who brings the Rock to Vote to like Slovakia. Great. And, you know, and this is the first time that like. Uh, th this is how we introduce people to democracy by showing yeah. them how cringe it can be. Perfect. Well, and, and the government is immediately, immediately, this is sort of the first time that like a, a government is seriously like, well, I mean, sorry, okay. This is the first time that you've had like a protest movement that starts and the head of the country goes like, it's George Soros. He's the one doing this, even though like the Ford Foundation again and the Rockefellers and just like a bunch of random people in Slovakia are also doing this. But this is this is this is sort of going to become like a pattern in 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 these things because you know he he's sort of like like I think Soros is doing he's kind of like poking a lot of sort of very powerful like 
increasingly powerful sort of regional right wing leaders because he looks at the societies and are like, it, actually, it sucks to have like just dog shit right wingers who are like racist and hate everyone running a country. Yeah, that sounds like it would be bad. Yeah. And, and, you know, and this is this is the thing about Soros, right? Like he every once in a while, right? He sees something really bad going on and goes, I'm going to throw a bunch of money at it, try to fix it. And so one of the things that he does this for is the war on drugs. Like in the in sort of the 80s and 90s, like Soros looks at this and is like, this fucking sucks. Like, this is really bad. And so he starts working in Baltimore where the government is trying to do like stuff that's like pretty like something like even now is considered sort of like pretty radical. I uh, uh, like harm reduction stuff. So, I mean, they like it, it, like Baltimore in the 90s has needle exchanges. Uh, he's doing like Narcan trainings for people. He's, you know, he's doing things like fun instead of like, like giving money to like, he's doing, he has these programs to like get people out of like prison faster. And he's doing like after school programs for kids. And this stuff, like this stuff's like genuinely good. Like there's no, like, I don't know. It sucks that like it's, it's billionaire money that's like doing it. But like, I don't know, like probably there's a lot of people who are alive because they didn't get HIV from needles that they were able to do exchanges for. Yeah, sure. That's all. That's all good stuff. Yeah. And, but you know, the interesting thing about source, right? He's, he's, he's like not like, you know, he's doing stuff that's like pretty lefty, right? But he's like not a partisan guy until he sees George Bush and he sees he's he like the day after 9-11 he's like holy shit this guy is a maniac and like it just it instantly has like the switch flips of like this man this man is an enemy to open society which is true and he's like he's he, he like gets this brain of like i need to bring this man down and so he starts getting really for the first time right he starts getting really really involved in the 2004 election he's doing like like these like micro targeting ad stuff he's like throwing money around everywhere and, you know, I mean, he explicitly like the like the way he looks at it, like if he's very explicit about this is like he, he wants to level the like the playing field between the Republicans who are funded by just a trillion right wing billionaires and the Democrats who are funded by not that many billionaires. The problem with this is that he has like a very weird view of what's wrong with Bush. I'm going to read from the <laughs> Soros again. In imposing its view of freedom on both the American people and a foreign country, quote, the supremacist ideology of the Bush administration in its, is in contradiction with the principles of open society because it claims possession of an ultimate truth. Which, I don't know, I, I, I don't actually think, like, claiming possession of an ultimate truth is, like, specifically the thing that, like, is the reason why the Bush administration is bad. But simultaneously, I don't know, like, I... It, it's hard for me to be, like too mad about a billionaire seeing George Bush and just like going oh my god and sort of yeah it didn't it didn't work but it's yeah. good that he gave it a gave it the old college try yeah well and unfortunately this this has a backlash effect which is the Republicans see him start doing this and they're like oh shit this is incredible campaign material for us and we start seeing like the the, the sort of pr- the the less openly anti-Semitic like precursors to like all the stuff we see today like Bill O'Reilly goes after him mm-hmm. um oh god Robert do you remember Den- Dennis Hastert 
Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Oh. Dennis, look, if, if I'm uh. listing my favorite pedophiles who were longstanding speakers of the House of Representatives, um, Dennis Hastert is easily in the top three. He, I, this is the thing that's been like collectively wiped from like America's conscience is that like the Republican speaker of the house for like 20 years was like one of, one of, one of history's most prolific pedophiles. He sure was. <laughs> um, and he, he also, it turns out one of the people who mainstream the anti Soros stuff, uh, he starts citing a fucking Lyndon LaRouche quote unquote report claiming that Soros got his money from drugs. So. Lyndon LaRouche is this like fascist weirdo who cut his teeth in running this like anti-communist cult that would like physically fight leftist groups on campuses and would like give information on like student leftist groups and like other leftist groups to the government. Like they are they are so fed it up that like if you start reading about the LaRoucheites, like they, they were narking to federal orgs like you've never heard of before. It's a stunningly, stunningly bizarre, like conspiracy cult thing. And Dennis Hastert was just straight up, like, reading their anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, like, on TV. But, you know, and I, I think I think this is something that, that some, one of the things I wanted to emphasize, like, in, in this episode, right, is, like, the anti-Soros stuff isn't really, like, I don't know what you call it, like, or, or sort of organic anti-Semitism. Like, it's not something that, like, comes from the Republican base, right? This is something that... This is a deliberate choice by Republican political strategists who are very deliberately like this. This is this is a Jewish billionaire who's helping the who's helping the Democratic Party. Like we can use this to do to try to do like culture war shit to win this election. And, you know, like you, you we know we, we can see the results of this and this isn't even you know, we're going to get this in a little bit. But like this, this isn't even the only time this is going to happen <laughs> where like the specific like Soros, like anti-Semitism stuff we're doing against them is like it's cooked up by like like very specifically cooked up as a targeted thing by political strategists i love it which it's oh it's, it's good uh, anyways we should we should do ads yeah speaking of anti-semitism you know just just speaking about it that's what we're doing here anyway here's some ads Ah, we're back. Uh, got another email from the ADL. I'm going to deal with this. Y'all continue talking about George Soros. Oh, boy. So, all right. But the, the other thing Soros keeps doing, like, you know, so in, in going after Bush, right, he has now made himself like, he's not enemy number one yet, but he's going, he's made himself like a pretty high profile enemy of, of the Republic. The, like the, he's the right up there with that guy who threw the shoe. Yeah. 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 Also, that guy actually sucks. I, I, I do yeah, yeah. We're, we're not yeah. praising him. We're yeah. just noting that I, a guy I, threw a shoe. Yeah. <laughs> um, he starts this sort of like arc of pissing off a bunch of really, really powerful and important people who are anti-Semitic right wingers. So, Remember how I, I a while back I said I was talking about there was a guy who double crossed Soros who was like this guy's bad at politics, <laughs> so that guy was like a uh, uh, that 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 guy that guy was a, a a Georgian protest leader who Soros like helped like his protest movements overthrow a sort of like kind of pretty shitty like pro Russian government in Georgia. But like that guy, that guy has like a wild arc that you could do his own fucking movie series on. Uh, he's now a a victor, a, a close ally of Victor Orban, so it's going great. Wait, how do you actually pronounce his name? I, I for some reason it always just like pings off my brain. 
Oh uh, yeah, I mean, Victor with Garen, Garen, I hear are the real brain trust to ask about pronunciations. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've you've brought together, you know, just the, the goats two, of two saying of words, right? Greatest, greatest, <laughs> greatest <laughs> pronunciators. <laughs> just send me a list of like European cities. That's a free episode idea. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to say the word Binghamton like 47 times. It's going to be great. <laughs> okay, so Soros backs us. This, this is called the Rose Revolution. And, you know, this, this turns out badly for Soros in every possible way, which is that, like, one, his guy, like, sucks and turns on him. And then, two, he really, like, this, like, really pisses off Vladimir Putin. A man who is going to hold this grudge, like, un- like o- on his deathbed, he will be holding this grudge. Now, okay, so w- one of, one of the things that that sort of like happens, so he he he's backing these sort of like protest movements in in Eastern Europe, I uh, through the sort of two thousands, um, and you know. <laughs> As the 2000s go on and turn to 2008, thing the the world economy goes to shit. Uh, a bunch of right wingers start taking power, and one of Victor Orban's like political consultants, who's this guy who he met through Netanyahu, like specifically like this is this is another consultant guy, very specifically cooks up the idea for how you know he's trying to fend off like a right like a sort of another sort of right wing challenge. He's trying to fend off like. The rest of the sort of political establishment and Orban's consultant, like very specifically, is like, "What if we go after Soros again?" And you know, and so he does. And the, this is this is another one of those things. Like, this is literally the the anti-Semitism is fucking cooked up in a PR lab in in in, in, in order for these people to win elections. And I don't know that 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 just sort of the, the just sort of like cynical, cold bloodedness of it. Like of these people, like this political consultant, by the way, like is also Jewish, right? Like, and he just doesn't give a shit. He's like, oh, fuck it. Like, well, we'll, we'll, you know, like I, I, I'm like one of Netanyahu's guys. Netanyahu fucking hates this guy too. Like, why don't we just use him as a punching bag? And so they do. And you know, th- this is this is part of a big part of the reason, like, why Soros turns into the sort of enemy number one is that in 2015 they start blaming him for the influx of refugees from Syria. And this spreads like fucking wildfire. Suddenly, like every single right wing leader on Earth is like, oh, shit, I can blame all of my refugee stuff on this guy. And they start doing it. And, you know, suddenly like like Erdogan is blaming him for like the Getzi Park protest in 2013. Like Trump gets on this. And, you know, th- this stuff sort of like it, it's it spreads really quickly. And once it's sort of out of the bottle, right, like. You know, like people like like there 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 are the, the people who sort of first start this right are doing this sort of like, you know, like incredibly cold, cynical political calculus. But once once that once this like incredibly high level of anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism gets out of the open, it starts turning into just like Soros is Satan shit. Um, and you know, and and part part of what happens here is is that like this is this is one of the things like the, the sort of campaigns against Soros is one of the things that is responsible for like our current like migrant policy, like why it's so bad, like why like half of our episodes next week are going to be about like just horrible shit happening at the border, which is that like Soros in the, in the, like the late, the nineties and two thousands found out that like Clinton was funding his welfare reform by cutting legal immigrants off from food stamps and like SSI benefits. 
And he's like, wait, this is fucked. Oh, you know, slick Willie. Yeah, like, like just like, like he he cut 1.5 million people off of his off of fucking benefits for just no reason. Like unbelievably demonic act. And Soros finds out about this is like, wait, what the fuck? What do you mean he's doing this? So he like puts a coalition together that like funds a bunch of Im- immigrant advocacy groups. And he's able to overturn this, but there, there there's a sort of right wing, the right wing reaction to this, right? Like part is partially also part of the right wing reaction to Soros in 2004. There's this very, very effective and like unbelievably brutal sort of right wing backlash about immigration politics. That is, you know, it's one of the things that drives the Obama administration, right? The Obama administration is like worse than the Bush administration on like deportation shit. It's, you know, just utter horror and all of that stuff continues. And all of these right wing people figure out that if you can just pin like, like Trump starts, like Trump pins the migrant caravan on Soros and they figure out like, this, this is the, this is like the specific combination, right? It's like the, 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 the anti-Semitism of like the Jewish banker bringing immigrants into your country is just like the sort of one way shop driving your entire country into like a, a like fascist right wing frenzy, and it works. And now you know, like the, the the cycle that we're in now is like anytime something happens, uh, like the right blames him for it. Like the so the 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 the, the current right wing panic is that George Soros was funding some like pretty moderate like reform DA people because he's a tri- criminal justice reform guy. And the Republicans are now all talking about how this is like a scheme by Soros to like cause crime and like destroy the entire country. And unfortunately, like this is just like this this is just this is just reality now. Um, all of these like really bleakly cynical political leaders and their like pollsters and PR consultants were like, we could use anti-Semitism to win elections. And they did. And now we live in hell. Yeah. But on the upside, you know, uh, the, you know, have you guys had the, uh, the new, uh, the new Mountain Dew zero major melon? It's not tasty, but uh, it's in grocery stores. So, if you're looking for a diet Mountain Dew flavor, you know, that makes it all kind of worthwhile. Ah, capitalism. No longer yeah. even delivering flavor. That's that's what I had for you. Uh, it was that or another heroin. Why Why would they need joke. to deliver flavor when instead they can just continue to mainstream anti-Semitism to get right-wing mm-hmm. politicians elected so they can make certain hey, corporate but you know what i i've been i've been studying this can for a while now and none of the anthropomorphized watermelons uh look like they could be racial caricatures so that's a win you know look that if, if that is if it, that is actually that actually is a racism win to be yeah. fair if, 19, if, if if mountain dew had made a, a a melon version in 1930 it would have been pretty bad like we would be sharing pictures of those cans on twitter today and going oh my god <laughs> they would have to make a statement they'd have to donate some money to like i don't know fund a uh probably scholarships or something it'd be a real problem for mountain dew is what i'm saying but today Nothing problematic about the melons on their can. Yeah, I'm sure there's nothing problematic about the soda industry. <laughs> mm, aspartame. <laughs> the health uh, chemical. 
Well, uh, is 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 that is that all we had, Mia? Yeah, that's yeah. This is this is what it could happen here. I... Well, it's is I think now now we finally know why George Soros is as bad as Magneto, um, mm-hmm. and and why comparing George Soros to Magneto as the one of the richest men, men in the world who owns probably the most influential communication app is uh, probably not a good thing. You know, okay, um, one, one one more thing yeah, that I, I, I want to get it's at. Fine. Like for like one second that I forgot, I realized I forgot to say earlier is that like Soros is not like in, in the scale of billionaires, Soros is not very rich. Like he's like the 370th richest billionaire. Yeah. Like he's not even in the top 100, right? Elon Musk, he has like $6 billion. Elon Musk has like $184 billion or something. So like, you know, what? <laughs> The 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 relative levels of influence that these people have. No, are, I was ta- I was talking about e- yeah. e- Elon Musk being yeah, yeah, one yeah. of the, the well, one of the richest, most influential people. Yeah, on the yeah, planet. yeah, yeah. I just I I I just, I, just I, I I I need everyone to understand exactly how much we're fucking rich. It's 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 like fucking it's like when fucking Henry Ford was like doing anti-Semitic conspiracy series. It's like you literally like like you personally literally control like more wealth than like all of the people you're ranting about combined like shut the fuck up oh my god <sighs> anti-semitism folks it sucks and also rich people do it even though they're they are the actual like the the actual it, ghouls. It, it, yeah in, in, in so far as anything even remotely like what they're what they're hypothesizing could even potentially exist it's fucking these people so yeah they're bad uh mm-hmm. yeah enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at betmgm signing up and playing is so easy simply sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet when you register with betmgm you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features live betting options and the best daily promotions in the business and with betmgm at your fingertips every play and every game matter more than ever place your money line prop and parlay bets with a king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if if you don't win your first bet that's right up to fifteen hundred dollars again sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet betmgm and game sense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. 
It's it could happen here. Uh, look, I, did, I didn't think of an intro for this one. I really should have. Uh, I apologize to the readers. I was reading about Chinese SOEs instead. Uh, yeah, this is a podcast that's uh, I don't know. It's about things. Uh, I'm here. I'm here what with a, Gary. What a, what a useful description. <laughs> Unlike all those other podcasts, <laughs> which what? aren't about, not things. about things, and ours is actually about things. And today it's about hot dogs. And in order to talk about hot dogs, we're joined by Jamie Loftus, whose new book, Raw Dog, The Naked Truth About Hot Dogs, boldly asked the question, what if a book was good? Welcome to the show, Jamie. Hello. <laughs> Hello. So, so good to be here to talk about things. This is like the thingiest thing uh, available, I think. Yeah. So I, I read this book in... Okay, I don't, I don't know how you're actually supposed to divide up. Like, if, if you stand up to go to the bathroom in the middle of a sitting, is that still one sitting? But does yeah, it now increase it to two yeah, things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so I read this yeah. book in one sitting and it was great. Um, Whoa, one sitting with a with a bathroom break? There, I think there was two technically, but yeah, yeah, it was uh, a it was, it was a good time. Book. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so glad you liked it. <laughs> yeah, and so okay, so this this is a book that's about hot dogs and also about uh, it's a tale of human human and animal misery and suffering. And so, like, so as I was reading the book, my playlist pops up Daniel Kahn and the painted bird song, The Butcher's Share. And so I'm like Ooh. reading about this and the, the song starts going, let's take a walk around the old bazaar where every little thing has traveled far. Every pair of pants and grain of rice contains a horror story and its price. Oh my God. I thematic too. Wow. Really, a, really theming right at you. Yeah. I was like, wow, wow. Okay. I guess reality is just sort of telling me what the. What the, what the plot is right now. Um, yeah, I mean, that in another another case, I think that's really important that we're talking about this right now, is that I, I believe your book was officially published on May 23rd. Yeah. Which is which is uh, the, the, the 23rd day in the fifth month, which is obviously of the year 2023, which is very important mm-hmm. in, the, in the Discordian calendar. And your book's about hot dogs, which is a specifically, it is the one sacred food in the religion of Discordianism. So we we, we I, for these reasons I think it's really it's really important we talk about this because you you must be a very powerful wizard to have to have figured this out. Yes, yes, I had to reserve this date years in advance. I saw it coming, and uh, you know, and and then by the time people caught on, it was too late. I had already uh, I had already wizarded my way into the the most potent release date, and now I mean it's we all may be fucked because I did that. <laughs> uh, someone, someone's going to assassinate JFK again. It's going to be great. <laughs> and this time his head is going to explode like there was twice as much blood in it as the original. It's going to be really shocking. As the original. I love that. It's like as the original, the original like, series or movies. Or, yeah. it's gonna be a second, there's going to be a second grassy knoll stack on top of the book depository. It's going to be amazing. Has reboot culture gone too far? You know, <laughs> it's not that good. It's a good question. I, I was trying to, I was trying to do a reboot culture plug cycle back here thing, and I, I I can't do it. I'm I'm a hack and a fraud. But <laughs> I wanted to, yeah. So I I wanted to talk to you a bit about one of the things you mentioned in the book is that you were trying to get into like like try trying to be able to get tours of these of these meat uh, like packing plants, and just they just like didn't mm-hmm. let you. So I wanted to ask a bit about like that process because that seemed like it was incredibly chaotic. Yeah, it was really uh, frustrating and humiliating, <laughs> uh, kind of every step of the way. Where 
I mean, as we were traveling, I had, you know, the map of places that I wanted to go. And then I also had a map of like uh, meatpacking plants that we could possibly go to on the way. And so I reached out a little bit in advance and either got, I mean, got a ton of just no answers and I would try to call. But generally the excuse I was given was, um, was, well, we don't let people tour anymore since COVID. Cause there were, um, a few places. I know that the Vienna beef factory in Chicago used to do tours of very specific areas of the factory, <laughs> kind of the least gnarly parts, yeah. which is saying nothing. Uh, but, uh, you know, there were places that you, that used to let civilians <laughs> tour and now it's just Unless things have changed in the last, you know, year or so, no one can. And on top of that, in certain states, and this is also shifting, but um, ag-ag laws, I think, yeah. make it way less possible and um, appealing for any meatpacking plant to allow other people in, mm. um, which is, tr- I, I mean, the ag-ag law um, rabbit hole is so sinister of just like, like instead of any meaningful improvement in meatpacking plants, they're inventing new laws to combat uh, technology, which is just like terrifying. Yeah, I mean that was a. I well, was that was that technically pre-green scare? Uh that's uh, a good question. I'm, this is like, I'm, I think I think it was I think that was mostly like a mid like a, a mid nineties thing. Yeah, but they've definitely um, kicked up. I mean, I think awareness of them in general has kicked up in the last couple of years because yeah. like. Uh, in, in, uh, sort of in step with how horrible conditions were for workers, uh, during lockdown after the executive order. Um, I think there was like all of a sudden a heightened interest in wanting to investigate it and they were just blocked at every single turn. And there are some, I mean, I know that some have been, uh, overturned or in the, uh, in the process of being overturned, but, um, I don't know. It, it seems pretty bleak to me. Yeah. Yeah, and then, like you know, I think on top of that, right? Like we found out, like what, like a, like a, was it like a month ago? Like pretty recently, also that there there were a bunch of companies of these meatpacking companies that were just like using child labor, and the children were getting horribly mm-hmm. maimed. Yep, <laughs> that yeah that, that that was in didn't make the book, but I I could have taken an educated guess. Like you know, like truly, yeah. it, it is like yeah. often so comically bad it feels wrong but it's just like so over the top horrible and when and it, it sounds like describing current meatpacking conditions um in the u.s sounds like you're describing meatpacking conditions 100 years ago and they were actually slightly better 100 years ago um so it is it is very bleak in, in the unions um that still exist but they are somewhat weakened uh and um making it possible for laws like this to sneak through an active child labor and uh there's i I know i put this in the book because it's something i think about all the time where you know down the line it was reported that not only was working at a meatpacking plant one of the least safe jobs in the country during lockdown but um but on top of that uh a year later it was revealed that uh the top brass at uh, Tyson and Smithfield were directly colluding with the government and essentially drafted the um, 
drafted the executive order that was given in April 2020 to keep the meatpacking plants open. There were, you know, foremen and sort of middle managers at these companies that would take bets on how many of their employees would get sick. It was just like it was cartoon evil it was yeah i'm like like constantly haunted by the taking bets thing like that's i think about that like (laughs) once a week and i'm like i i i think i think your line was i think your line was like a a continued thing of how how okay with you are you are are you with bringing the guillotine back and i was like you know (laughs) like this is Uh, and it's the worst when it's like middle managers. I'm like, what is yeah. your what is your end game here? Like, it's I mean, I know what the end game is, but it's so bleak to you know be making you know just getting by and still betting against your like like vulnerable people that work for you who you see every day. It's just like I mean, whatever. Not surprising, but yeah, it's like wow. There's no there's no justice in hot dog land. There really isn't. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so curious about how curated what they what information is allowed to be shared like i'm curious if yeah. i don't know if they know how bad it is even or if they're just like conditioned not to not to think about it yeah from what i can tell uh there are and i write about one at length in the book because it's one of my favorite youtube clips of all time oh, uh, yes. this like <laughs> canadian tv show um that's like a i think it's just called how it's made uh yeah but this, it's this, like, is, this is a very popular canadian television show it's <laughs> i watched it's this an, one I, as a kid really yeah 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 uh, it i i love i mean i love shows like that and i love specifically when they show you how something gross is made yeah. because they're really trying to like keep the <laughs> yeah. mood light in a way that is like so funny with hot dogs where it's like just these big machines farting out goo and then there's like this baseline playing that's like boom 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 the next step in the hot dog's journey yep. is going yep. to the shit vet <laughs> and you're like what it's so good <laughs> but it's really i mean those those clips are ridiculously curated and to the point where it's like i can't even really tell you what's missing but i you know you can tell weird pr when you see it and um and yeah like they're sort of showing the easiest, I don't know. It reminds me, I don't know why I'm like in, I'm like Theranos pilled today, but like, it reminds me of the anecdote about Elizabeth Holmes where she was like taking Joe Biden around Theranos. And then there were like people in each room setting up the next room to look like it was a functioning business (laughs) um, as like they were taking him through the, through the rooms and successfully deceived him. That's very much what hot dog production clips feel like to me which is wild because they're still disgusting like you cannot make it look good um but yeah i don't know i mean going back through years of reports um it's it's uh really difficult understandably so to uh speak with people who work at meatpacking plants as well because there's like not a lot of uh that they stand to gain from talking to reporters but there was a Mm -hmm. good washington post report about it in the early 2000s that detailed uh, not just uh, labor abuses within the workforce, but how, you know, when you're not paying your employees enough and not uh, keeping the equipment updated and our, you know, factory farming focused on just production, 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 uh, the animals are far worse off too. And there were some pretty horrifying descriptions of what would happen to animals when people didn't have the the workforce or the, um, or the tools to be able to, um, 
you know, slaughter an animal in not the most horrible way possible. Yeah, um, like, I, 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 I like thought I had a like I, I like watched stuff before on factory farming and like I, I don't. <laughs> I'm gonna have a real fun time sleeping tonight thinking about the fucking <laughs> like I don't know. I the should probably content warning this because this is like the, the animal stuff and this is genuinely horrible. Like the specific yeah. thing I was looking at was like them talking about like they're like stunning an animal to kill it, but the animal comes back and they're like literally chopping the animal apart while it's alive. And the animal's like blinking at them. I'm like, Jesus Christ. It's ah. like it's haunting. And then ah. and on the workers end, it's like, and yeah. don't stop or you're fired. And mm-hmm. like and you have no protection. It's just like it's a it's a nightmare in a lot of places and there it came around in an interesting way with um at the nathan's hot dog eating contest last year because they use i don't know if they use smithfield plants for all of their food but they did certainly some of them and there was a protester who came on stage while joey chestnut was gobbling 75 glizzies or something like that and like the protester was like wearing a darth vader mask and he had this sign that said like take down the Smithfield death star. And it was a good, like a pretty solid protest. It made it on TV, but then Joey Chestnut tackled him to the ground and then just stood up and kept eating hot dogs. It was like, kind <laughs> of, I mean, uh, the protester was so in the right, but also watching Joey really just take someone just in the middle of eating. He was like 40 hot dogs deep tackled this guy to the ground and on like the low res feed I was watching, it looked like he killed him. And I was like, what did Joey just do on ESPN? Did he just kill a man? Um, he didn't, but he injured someone. <laughs> and he also had a broken leg at the time. Joey, not the protester. So it was just like, and then he went back to know, eating Very, hot very bizarre. And then he, yeah, and then he finished the contest and he was like, well, I would have beat my own record, but unfortunately I had to pause for five seconds to kill someone. <laughs> but anyways, the, yeah, the, the, especially Smithfield, I think is uh, uniquely bad, but Smithfield and Tyson is just like her, like horrendous with, with labor practices. Yeah. I mean, I think that was like, I had a thing I was going to say, and then it, it simply evaporated from my mind. Uh <laughs> You know what? Fuck it. Ad break. We're doing an ad break here <laughs> to cover up my failures. I keep having this like false memory. I I I feel like it's like this like Mandela effect thing where when everyone says whenever someone says Joey Chestnut, I keep I I keep thinking it's a character from I think you should leave. But whenever I look at it, I'm like, <laughs> it no, it's not. Like it's, it's, it <laughs> every single time. I mean, it does sound like that. <laughs> And I think You Should Leave has such uh, God-tier hot dog jokes that Joey should be on that show. But unfortunately, he lacks charisma. And so he also he's seems not kind of fun. like a bad person. <laughs> he's he's definitely complicit in, in, in a number of things. Very hard to know what Joey's politics are, which I know sure. is intentional. But I'm like, what's going on with him? He's from San Diego, but now he lives in Indiana. I just don't hmm. feel like it bodes well, but I can't say for sure. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. You know, that was another part of this that I was like, I was reading this and especially like given the shit that's been happening the last few weeks, reading about Takeru Kobayashi, uh, the, 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 for, the, the, the former champion competitive eating, eating guy coming to the U S and then like 
having the very common Asian American experience of like coming to the U.S. and then slowly realizing, holy shit, this place sucks ass. Like there's just a bunch of racists here and they hate us. And my boss is going to like run a racist PR campaign against me for money. Like like mask off like every day all the time. And here's the guy I'm going to be replacing you with and you will be only abused uh until this guy can beat you and then goodbye forever and that's what happened it's so uh, i mean i don't know i i think it's fascinating in a very sick way because it's like he is just hot dog vince mcmahon um yeah. <laughs> like it's absolutely who this guy is and clearly idolizes vince mcmahon the guy george shea like his wife wrote for the wwe and soap operas And so he's just like very well versed in a very racist, anti-woman, high drama. Like it's just like what he, it's his favorite. Um, And I hate him. (laughs) And he's so uniquely in control of that world. It feels very Vince McMahon-ish where you're like, surely someone else could do this job. But but it's just not, not allowed. If if he's the Vince McMahon of the hot dog world, what are what are you now in the hot dog world? And the, and the, Good question. The study of hot dogs. I'm one of the people who Vince McMahon covers up the murder of. I think probably mm. that's eventually me. Um, I'll, I'll be involved in a very uh, small suspicious uh, incident in in this man's life. I don't know. I mean. Yeah, unfortunately, I feel like that's the best shot I have. Uh, it was interesting, though, when I, I released an excerpt of my book that was about Joey Chestnut. And they did not run this by me, but they just named the excerpt, I'm in love with Joey Chestnut. I was like, OK, I guess I do say that. Um, but I wouldn't lead with it. Anyways, uh, the, the Major League Eating PR team reached out to me and I thought it was going to be, I was just going to get like reamed, but they, it was just a light fact. Correct. It was very weird, a little menacing, but I guess that they're fine with me uh, calling them evil. They're like, Hey, when you said we were evil, you, your number was a little bit off just so you know. And oh. I was like, thanks. I guess nice press that. is That's good nice. press. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Knowledge is power. Uh, and I changed my mind. I think they're great now due to this small fact correction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> ringing, ringing endorsements. <laughs> <laughs> we can't, uh, we're, we're attempting to confirm live. There is not, in fact, a gun behind Jamie's head right now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Look, I can't say. I can't say. Uh, I think the two things, yeah, with the book being out now, it feels nice in most ways. And then two ways where I'm like stressed out about it, where I'm like, I'm afraid that George Shea is going to come for me. And I'm also afraid the entire city of Chicago is going to come. For oh, okay. Me. I want to talk about this because, <laughs> okay. all right. So I'm going to have to go into witness protection after this, but I, I agree know. with you that the Chicago really? style hot dogs, not that good. Yeah. Like, Whoa, it, like I think, I, I think celery salt this. on hot dog is really good, but yeah. I, there's, I like, it doesn't, it just, it's, it gets too soggy pretty quickly. It like, the flavors don't necessarily go together. Like no. it's, it's only okay. It's, it's too, it's wet and there's too much going on. And it's just like, a, yeah, it's a catastrophe. I, I, well, okay. I was promising myself I would dial back on 
Chicago <laughs> hot dog slander. But it's like not, it's not, it's not very good. And the, and I think the main thing, it wouldn't bother me as much if they, uh, I'm like those people in Chicago, who, uh, but if the Chicago hot dog loving community was just like, Hey, we have this gross hot dog, uh, and we love it. That's fine. Unbridled enthusiasm for something gross. Love it. But then they top that off by being like, and if you like ketchup, you should walk into traffic and get hit by a car. Like so aggressively hate ketchup in a way that I, I don't know. I, no, I don't love get this something either. disgusting, like, but hating something innocuous is such a weird thing to do. It's very bizarre. I also got like just absolute whiplash reading this because one, one of the places you go to is, is the I, I, incomprehensibly named Fatso's last stand. And I was literally <laughs> yes. there last week by accident because I, I no way. Yeah, so I, I was uh, like an absolute fool. I was trying to travel at 7 a.m. on two hours of sleep because I was writing an episode, Oof. and I took a mm. bus the wrong way, and I ended up there, and I was like, what the fuck have I just walked into? And I opened this book, and I was like, oh my god, what is happening to me? <laughs> Empty Fatso's Last Stand sounds like a very scary liminal was, space to exist it was so accursed like I, yeah. I was like getting off the bus and the bus driver was like are you sure you want to get off here and i was like yeah well the i beginning mean of like a like a i don't know goosebumps episode it was, <laughs> it was a whole thing was, yeah oh. and then you find out that fatso's last stand burned down 20 years ago <laughs> <laughs> did you get anything they weren't open oh god mm. Pretty good. It was it was pretty good there. And then I've since gone back to Chicago because I didn't have time to go everywhere I wanted to. And I've since gone back. And I do genuinely like the Chicago style hot dog at Red Hot Ranch. I'm mm. a big Red Hot Ranch head. I've converted. Uh, but mo- but a lot of it is, yeah, it's just bizarre. And the hating the ketchup thing is confusing. And then I went to Pittsburgh recently and their ketchup city USA. And so I was having some interesting conversations. <laughs> And um, yeah, this is what my life is like now. Uh, the other thing, okay, so there's there's two more spe- very specific hot dog questions I need to ask. One is, mm. uh, do you have Portillo takes? Ooh, um, not really. I, I like I like Portillos, I, and I I've been in Illinois and I've been in uh, California too. It's it's a classic. It's yeah. good. I I it didn't uh, it didn't make it into the book. Because there was like so many hot dogs that didn't make it into the book because they were like, <laughs> all right, that's just you saying like there were so many paragraphs in a row of like, and then I had this one and I liked it. And then I had this one and I liked it. <laughs> so my editor was like, all right, we can, we, yeah, we, we can cut, cut, but so yeah, I'm, I'm a, <laughs> we can, I had to cut whole chapters. It's so wild how long this book could have been were I not reined in. Um, but there is, well, this is Chicago relevant too. I took a, a, a two day course called hot dog university Ooh. through Vienna beef oh from God, this guy. That's Mark. a thing. I'm going to, can you repeat that for me? Sorry. Oh uh, yeah. I'm a graduate of hot dog university. <laughs> uh, it's a course where you, it, it was on zoom. Unfortunately it used to be mm. in person this is guy Mark, uh, PhD, professor of hot dogs. And uh, you take the course and he teaches you how to uh, open your own hot dog stand in, over oh. the course of two days. And it was actually, I learned a lot. How many people were on the Zoom? There were three people. It was <laughs> me and two guys from Chicago. Uh, <laughs> and I was trying to like 
be, I, I didn't want to say why I was there. So I was trying to just like, oh, my name's Jamie and I'm interested in opening a California hot dog stand. And Mark was really interested in that idea. And it was a couple months of me kind of like dodging some emails of like, I'm not going to do it. I'm like, <laughs> I never told them, but I'm not going to do it. Okay. So, all right. I need to, I got I'm now conflicted because I have a great hot dog stand pivot, but also I want to ask you the second hot dog question, which is, have you had Jappa dogs? No, I haven't had Jappa dogs yet. I wanted to go because I know that there's like a bunch of, there's some in Vancouver. Is that right? Like I know. That yeah. Yeah. It's very a, yeah. It's a Canadian Canada coded. My, my friend in Vancouver keeps insisting I eat it and I refuse. <laughs> I wanted to go to Vancouver and try it because like Northwestern hot dogs, there's like, there's a lot going on there in a good way. Like Portland, Seattle, big fan of their hot dogs. Yeah. I, I didn't get to Jabba dog. There are a few places. There's a place in Maine. I really wanted to go to, but it was so on the side of the highway and open mm. two hours a day that it was like, <laughs> oh, no. it would be so logistically hard to be there, but working on it. Yeah. I want to go to Jabba dog someday. I went to, uh, I got hot dog poutine in Montreal recently. Ooh which I guess is com- a common poutine make. Um, it was great. So now that you've dedicated, I'm guessing, multiple years of your life. Two um, years, yeah. yeah to, <laughs> Not getting to, those back. To, I guess it's studying, studying both hot dogs and like the cultural conditions that are created around them. Um, do you feel like a better person? <laughs> oh, um... Or, or have you learned something extremely useful about American culture that will improve your life going forward? Thank you for the two alternatives to the question. I, I would say that knowing more about hot dogs did make me a better person, I think. I hope. And I also, I think that like, I don't know, it's like, it feels better to, or, or I don't know, like I, I enjoy fi- uh, stuff that it's like, you can get to a really dark and serious place, but they seem so innocuous. It's like, um, whatever, getting Hansel and Gretel to come into your candy house and then being like, actually it's fucking murder city. Everyone's <laughs> fucked in here. Like you're going to have fun for a little while. The food is delicious, but then you're going to die. Like, I just, I like, um, I like subjects like that. Um, and getting to, I don't know, I've met genuinely, I, when we had the book release show the other night, I have met so many nice people through the hot dog community. I, my my, hot dog community. It's true. I had this guy I met in a parking lot in Culver city. Um, he was a wiener mobile driver at the time Mm -hmm. and he like brought his fiance and we talked on stage and he was reflecting on his wiener mobile heyday. And he told me, this oh i'm excited because uh, at the time he was still working for oscar meyer and i was like do people have sex in here and he was like i don't know probably um but now he doesn't work for oscar meyer so i was like <laughs> do people have sex in there you have no loyalty at this point and he was like okay well i never did but there is like there's like six seats in the wienermobile and i guess on the back left it's called the meat seat and that's where <gasps> Eat. Fuck what? the meat <laughs> seats. I know oh. it was really, oh, no. it was really shocking. And he's so sweet that it was really scary to hear it coming out of his mouth. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. So there is the meat seat. Anyways, I've made a lot of nice. I've met a lot of nice people <laughs> through hot dogs, and I've learned stuff I I did not uh, know. So it's fun. 
Well, you you too can become a better person by purchasing the book Raw Talk, wherever <laughs> books are sold. One actual serious question. Have you ever watched the movie Food Fight? No. Wait, when when is it from? The 2012 computer animated movie starring <laughs> s- starring supermarket food mascots that and, and they and, and they unite to fight the generic brand food products Whoa. in their grocery store and there's a lot of really weird nazi imagery really uncomfortable like over sexualization oh um and what? some of the most some of the most garish animation you've ever seen it's a pretty wild movie it, it was it Whoa. was in development for like oh it was like almost like a decade and a half um early sheen eva longoria hillary duff yeah. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> mad lib what a different yeah era. Uh, wow christopher lloyd plays plays uh plays <laughs> one of the villains um it is sure it is one of the worst like acid trips of a movie just just because like it it is just really bad um that is but so crazy that i have zero recollection it predominantly features hot dogs made. so wow i can i mean hot dogs are certainly prominent on this poster there i'm just like shocked at them billing the starkest tuna above the twinkie it doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> also, there is there is there is a dog character who's just like in, like Indiana Jones, but a dog that is also in, a, no. in like a, but they're also in a romantic relationship with a human woman. Um, <laughs> I don't want to know where the Nazi stuff comes in, but I am. This is so wild because it's like I thought that Sausage Party was the worst thing to happen to no, this very scary this is, genre, and it's this horrible. Is like, but this, this is like the dark side of Sausage Whoa. Party. No. Oh, no. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, and there's a maybe there's a sequel, Food Fight. It's about time. What? I I've not I've not heard of oh, this. Oh no! Oh, maybe this is fake. No, maybe this is fake. I hope it's fake. Yeah, this it was, is so ugly. Holy yeah. shit! No, it is. It is oh. one of the worst movies ever ever made it's 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 garish it's upsetting it is weirdly fascistic um and it's also like primarily based around like brand promotion also a lot of these big food companies like signed these contracts in the late 90s and of course the film didn't come out until 2012 oh my so, god so there's a whole Whoa. bunch of really weird like food fight merchandise that was made <laughs> with all of these brand mascots and it's Apparently it's all extremely that. questionable um, that does explain the cast. Yeah. Because I was like, it's a late 90s cast to have Wayne Brady playing Daredevil Dan right. and Christopher Lloyd playing Mr. Clipboard. Chris Catan is in it. Yeah, this movie has been in development for a long time. Wow. Holy uh, shit. Anyway, I I was just wondering, since it is it is supermarket food, hot dog adjacent, and it, it does does often draw draw uh, draw parallels. To Sausage Party, which is also obviously one of the most famous hot dog films. One of the F- most famous, fil- yes. Films, quote, films. Quote, quote, films. <laughs> Thank you. Motion pictures, cinema. cinema, cinema. I have. Um, I've been wearing them at the shows. I've have. They did make Halloween costumes for Sausage Party, oh um, and they have the bun that looks so visceral, like though, like it has like vagina mouth, and then they gave the bun huge boobs and a huge butt anyways she's voiced by Kristen Wiig and um I have the costume <laughs> and I've been wearing it wait no you have the actual costume yeah I have it I'm it's it's right oh, over no. there <laughs> oh. I'm gonna wear it tonight 
Oh gosh. You're wearing it for your book stuff? Yeah, I like I love a costume change, especially when it is also a jump scare. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah. Well, that's incredibly upsetting. Um, that's okay, about speak. all the time we have today, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie, where can people find the hot dog book? Oh, you can find it uh, all over the place, uh, but I would recommend getting it from bookshop.org if you're ordering online. It's a really cool website that will uh, automatically purchase from your nearest independent bookstore and send it to you. Um, so yeah, it's a pro-labor book, so don't buy it from somewhere shitty. Use your head. Um, but yeah, get it. And there's also, I also uh, narrate the audiobook if you uh, like many people have been telling me for the past couple of days are like a book kind of a long podcast in a way and i was like whoa sure whoa. feels great feels great to hear <laughs> <laughs> all right and where can people find you on the internet and the stuff that you also do that's not the hot dog book uh bravely still on uh on twitter at jamie loftus help and uh instagram at jamie christ superstar and then you can listen to me on the Bechtel cast every week on this very network. Well, I, I sure hope you cover food fight in, in an upcoming episode. <laughs> I do. We, we just covered sausage party and oh, really? I think we both have PTSD. <laughs> so, oh no. You have, to have like a detox period first. Yeah. <laughs> and then come back with food fight and and by the end be like, you know, sausage party Not wasn't that actually bad. that bad. Yeah, this is the this is the one you do when the paperback comes out. <laughs> oh, oh my nice, god honestly nice, nice not the worst idea i i i do want to watch this movie now but i like looking at the poster i'm like i don't know if i can watch it alone but i will <laughs> watch it <laughs> we can we we can surely plan something let's do it <sighs> all right uh thank you thank you for coming on and talking about hot dogs and labor and all of all of your hard work um, you can find us on Cool Zone Media on most of the Instagrams and Twitters and other places and uh, Happen Here Pod. Uh, keep on do dog dogging. Yep. Okay. As they say. As, as they say, <laughs> yes. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. 
for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Hello, welcome to It Could Happen Here. I'm Garrison Davis. Recently, I just wrapped up a whole five episodes about the previous week of action to stop Cop City in Atlanta, Georgia. In a somewhat unsuccessful attempt to shorten the running time of those episodes, I had to cut out many of the funny bits, jokes, gaffes, goofs, bloopers, and related tomfoolery. But as demonstrated by the police's massive mobilization to shut down a cancelled comedy event in the woods on March 7th, the Wolani Forest and surrounding area of Atlanta are often home to manifestations of absurdist humor. There's been a lot of not-great news recently. Well, there's kind of always a lot of not-great news now that we live in an ever-expanding hyper-reality, oversaturated with information, but I digress. I think it's just as important to not overlook the comedic, light-hearted side of things as it is to keep up with all of the doom and gloom that we usually platform on our show. So, without further ado, I present to you... Jokes from the Atlanta Forest! Side note, I am now invoking Jester's privilege. Legally, everything we say in this episode is a joke, as a, as a little heads up. Okay. This episode will probably make more sense if you listened to the four-part Week of Action series or the retrospective episode, but also I will do my best to pop in via this narration to help fill in any gaps so that uh, listeners will not be completely lost if you've not listened to those to those other episodes. Anyway, we shall start by tuning back into my conversation with Matt from the Atlanta Community Press Collective as we discuss the March 5th police raid of the South River Music Festival. Welcome to It Could Happen Here cast. I'm Garrison Davis. In World of Warcraft, you can shield bash. So <laughs> please, don't, <laughs> please don't include that. There's been this effort from police and media to frame these arrests as like, these were arrests that happened at a crime scene. Like these, these arrests were people who were, we, who were torching equipment, who were involved in all these actions, who were doing domestic terrorism. But all the arrests that happened were at a music festival. Like they, they were in a completely different section of the forest. Like at, a, at a music festival, at the parking lot, even away from the music festival. And, you know, police surveillance may be good. And they, they may have been able to pick out an individual or two. But for the most part, like you had something like 200 people uh, partake in this direct action and then disappear into the woods. There's really no way to. And, and of course, most of them were wearing block of some form. There's really no way. To, M- much of that block, which has now been burnt and is no longer existing in the physical material realm. So there, there's, there's no way to like really tell who was there and other than allegedly having mud on your clothes. 
you want to talk about what the warrants were and the oddity of of how how the warrants were formatted? Once you started to listen to them, you you noticed this very repetitive nature of them. And so uh, about halfway through, we get to a lawyer who straight up calls out the fact that these warrants seem like they were just copy pasted. Like every single person. All the way down the line. And, and w- w- one of the such claims... The... Mud. Mud. So I don't know. I, I don't know how many uh, festivals you've attended um, in your life, but I've been to a few and they are never clean affairs. So it it rained like one day before the night before the festival started. There was a tornado warning in Atlanta. I forgot about that. And there was rain, which makes I, I, I don't know if the prosecutors know this, but when rain mixes with dirt, it creates something called that we that we refer to as mud. My Doc Martens are still caked in mud. Future me cutting back in here for a sec. So for the record, I have since cleaned my Doc Martens, but the mud was still on there for well over a month until I was forced to wash my shoes after I stepped in much, much more mud while in the Tillamook Forest as I was failing to shoot a Keltec, which, yeah, that is that was that was probably my bad. These charges don't make any sense. There's no evidence these people committed any, any actual crimes, so they're just being charged with terrorism, this like nebulous concept. Um, the judge said that the legal basis of these claims will have to be decided on another day. Um, similarly, they said that in regards to like actual evidence that these people charged did any crimes, she said that she had none of this none of the she said that she had none of this evidence in front of her and that evidence is for another day. So it's absolutely I, I think bonkers is it's an appropriate word. One of those one of those kangaroo court moments. It really uh, my faith in the legal system was really solidified this day. There was also the, the threat of arrest for uh, the New York Times reporter that happened. Uh, <laughs> forgot to mention that. So, you know, I, I, we'll, we'll leave that commentary uh, <laughs> by itself. They should have they should have charged Sean Keenan with domestic terrorism. Sorry for making fun of noted trans ally, the New York Times. I promise it it won't happen again. Wait, wait, no, that's that's a lie. There's at least two more New York Times jokes in this script. Fuck. I guess let's talk about uh, Monday. Monday, Monday. <laughs> so, uh, don't... Is it... Is the editor? No, Daniel. Daniel, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. He's not going to hear any of this shit. Oh. Because okay. the way these work is I transcribe them and then I copy and paste sections so they only move the section over. So when I when I say ask Garrison about... Okay, so it turns out that was a lie. Uh, Daniel did need to hear that. So sorry, Daniel. Uh, full, full transparency. Most of those bleeps were me making horrible, horrible slurping noises into the microphone, as Daniel can probably attest. So really, all of you should be thanking Daniel for suffering through those to bleep them out. Daniel died for your sins. I, I, I mean content. Truly, truly braver than the troops. Insert joke. Anyway, back to me from the past. So let's talk about let's talk about Monday. Do we talk about the uh, the clergy event that happened in front of City Hall? So City Council meeting. Um, you work for the Atlanta Community Press Collective. Um, You've you've covered a lot of city council meetings in Atlanta before. This was my first time covering a, an Atlanta city council meeting. 
Um, due to your, you know, wisdom in this in this field, I would like for you to 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 discuss what happened at the city council meeting in, in relation to your to your to your years of experience in in covering these these uh, these meetings. So, I, I city council meets every other week <laughs> on Mondays. Uh, I cover several other committees, but uh, you know, the the big one is always the city council meeting and over over the course of time there there's like a cast of characters that that you just begin to understand are going to appear either every week or or from time to time and um you you had the pleasure of actually getting to see a few of these and i was like there were we were there were a few of us uh media folks there and i i was actually really happy that like people got to experience this with me because i usually have to do it by myself um so you got to meet uh, three of the characters you got to meet brother hakeem um, you got to meet Rachel, and you got to meet your favorite chef doctor. So this is just somebody who everyone refers to as chef doctor. He is dressed up as what you can only describe as a chef doctor. <laughs> Someone wearing half of a chef's outfit, half of a doctor's outfit. He had a Freemason pin on his shirt because of of course he did. Um, and I I just like watched him for a while because like initially in the city council meeting they were just like handing out awards. To like oh, the proclamation ceremonies, the proclamations and awards yes. to like various people, including like former city council members, like whatever. Um, and then eventually, public comment started, and I guess let's let's talk about Chef Doctor. So he, well, no, so for for the entirety of the city council meeting during the proclamations, <laughs> in the back in the back of, of the back of city council, there was this large red. Like like heart just sitting sitting in the back. But it, it it looked like Bob the tomato from Veggie Tales. It looked it looked that was exactly what I thought. I like this heart. Like why is there this Bob the tomato ass heart mascot just sitting in the back of city council? No one was inside the costume. It was just like the heart sitting there next to like another massive heart made up of like flowers. Um. So I was kind of confused for why that was there. Uh, there was like a pediatric surgeon that got like one of the awards. I'm like, oh, maybe the heart's there because of like, because of like heart surgery or something. I don't know. No, no, uh, no. That would make sense. And you but, have to, you have to get out of that mindset for for public comment for the most part. So then, Chef Doctor gets ten minutes of public comment. So we should explain that mechanism. Uh, everyone who who signs up for public comment gets two minutes. Uh, you can award your time or give over your time to somebody else. So there were four other people who gave their time over to Chef Doctor to give him ten minutes, and he used all ten minutes. And so, <laughs> what was Chef Doctor trying to get out of the city? What? what why? Why was he giving public all comments? Right, so, a shout out to Chef Doctor. Okay, like uh, Chef Doctor wants to uh, create a soul food museum uh, in the west side of Atlanta, and and he's she's shown up a few times uh, to kind of ask city council for money. Um, and as far as I know, that has gone nowhere. Uh, but that was what he is ostensibly there for today. However. Uh, Beyond just the heart, uh, the dancing. Oh. We haven't got there yet. <laughs> However, beyond just the big red heart and like the paper mache flower heart, he he brought a flautist. A flautist. So a flautist is someone who plays the flute. If you are like an uncultured person who's 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 listening to this, um, and he walked up to the microphone, 
And then for five minutes, he got a flautist to play a flute cover of Amazing Grace. Yes, but but he had backing music from a laptop that just kind of appeared out of nowhere and so <laughs> played they, into the microphone. They played this funeral song. As, as this now heart that's been brought to life <laughs> starts dancing, starts dancing. So this person wearing like heart pajama pants <laughs> changed into this heart costume at some point. I didn't see them change into this. I don't know how this happened. I must have like missed it. It's city council magic. Next will be uh, Chef Dr. Kenneth Wilhoyt. You'll have ten minutes due to yielded time. Chef, let's go ahead and get started. My name is uh, Chef Dr. Kenneth Wilhoyd. I'm the president of the Soul Food Museum and the Soul Food University. We are celebrating our 20th anniversary. And uh, we are asking for the city council and our honorable mayor to get behind us and, su and support us with donating a museum, space, building, and land with parking in the city of Atlanta for our tourists that come here to have a place to come and experience our hospitality, agriculture, service of Atlanta. I'm gonna say a quick prayer, because I'm spirit-led. I do things by spirit. I'm at that age, you know, it's not about me. It's about the spirit. Now, we'll have a song that was selected by the spirit of the ancestors. Not by me, but by the spirit of the ancestors. I asked God, I said, hey God, what song should we introduce today? This is the one that was chosen. But this this guy in the hard costume walks up and he starts like kind of dancing to this flute music for five minutes. Talk talk about the dancing. I don't think it was so much dancing as a swaying with a little bit of hand motion along with the swaying. Um, but like I I wasn't expecting it. I I thought someone like dosed me with hallucinogens. I th <laughs> I did actually. Um, I, oh, <laughs> I had the, there were there were some strips of LSD. I I put them in your water bottle when you weren't looking. <laughs> this explains so much about what happened on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> no, it would make mo much more sense if that's what happened. Unfortunately, Atlanta is a cartoon town, and that's not what happened. This was real life. So. This 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 float cover of Amazing Grace played for five minutes with along with the dancing heart, um, and then we finally got to public comment for th the reason for the, the reason we were for there. the reason for why we were there. Not only were we blessed with that stunning rendition of Amazing Grace, the flautist himself was was briefly able to address the city council before President Dave Shipman rudely, very very rudely called time. Amazing Grace. Such a song that, that means so much to the world. So that's it for them. Okay, thank you. Okay, and we are back. And just as a note, I forgot to put this in the script, so I'm going to say it now. 
it turns out that <laughs> that heart costume that was quote unquote dancing to the music that's actually rentable. You can rent that in Atlanta. So I I I'm I have some really good ideas for the next uh for the next week of action. <laughs> Since we can rent more more bouncy castles and also that heart costume. I think there's a lot of potential extremely funny things that could that could happen. Anyway, um uh back to my conversation with Matt from the Atlantic Community Press Collective. There there are a couple like things to note about how city council public comment works. Um, city council doesn't tend to pay attention to them. Uh, ostensibly, the only one who pays attention is uh, city council president Judge Shipman because it is his job to call time and to call up the next person. Uh, but, you know, city councilors will like step in and out of the room, get something to eat um, during the 17 hours of public comment for Cop City. Like one of them held a press conference. Like they- it is it is weird how they're like legally allowed to not pay attention like that is that is bizarre you you would you would you would think that if you uh allegedly work for the people like you would you pay have to actually to listen to them um so uh, amongst the city council there are two in particular um that I'm, I'm glad you got to see uh there there's mary norwood who who represents buckhead and then there's uh dustin hillis uh who is the um the committee chair for the public safety legal administration committee um so he's basically in charge of police here Throwing Molotov cocktails at officers and uh, damaging billions of dollars of equipment. And he gives off that vibe. And neither one of them will pay attention. No, um, they were they were on their phone from almost the entire time I was there. Um, the 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 Buckhead woman gave off uh, ontologically evil vibes. <laughs> like I. I, I I did not know like who she was when I went to the city council, but once I saw her, I was like, oh, okay, this person is like obviously evil, right? And I I, I asked people about it afterwards. They're like, oh yes, that is the person that represents Buckhead. I'm like, oh, okay, yes, okay, of course, of course. Bucket, of course, being um, the like primarily white neighborhood in North Atlanta, that uh, part of it wants to secede from the city, and you know that's that's a whole segregation. Yes, that is a whole nother issue, but to kind of give context of, of, of what Buckhead is. Red, redlining. That's not a question. That's just a observation. Uh, and so sitting directly next to her is Dustin Hillis, who like is known for not paying attention ever. Except, except they did both pay attention after public comment when police gave their testimony on what happened the night previous. And then these two people were very engaged. We will hear more from Mary Norwood, ontologically evil, in a in a bit. But first, I have to stop. Jesus Christ! Fucking fuck! Jesus, my cats are just run, running amok. All right. We will hear more from Mary Norwood, ontologically evil, in a bit. Uh, but first, I have to I, I have to include some of Councilman. Antonio Lewis's response after police chief Darren Sheerbaum gave his little presentation at city council, because I don't think I've ever heard January 6th, the Atlanta way and six flags all get mentioned in the same sentence before. It looked like January 6th. Uh, I ain't never seen police run from a group of people. And so the only thing I could think about when I saw that video, I saw it on ATL scoop. Uh, The video is all out there. I've been seeing it all over. And when I saw the police officers run, I mean, I, I was a little nervous when I saw the heat map. I saw a hundred people. I saw, I, I saw it. I mean, like <clears throat> that ain't the Atlanta way. I mean, I ain't never seen. I'm just thinking about the at the same time at Six Flags, we had some young men that were fighting. 
uh, at some of our teenagers fighting at Six Flags. They didn't run up on the police. They didn't run up on the police with molotov co- cocktails throwing to burn up stuff. What, what I will say, I thank you so much for last night for working. I want to really commend the officers because uh, y'all were under some immense pressure and to not see a gun fired back. Because uh, when I see the firecrackers, I'm, I'm, I'm from Cleveland Avenue. If they throw firecrackers at me, I don't know those firecrackers. I, I've never seen that. So I appreciate APD for doing that. Truly, truly a stunning admission. Just, just perfect. Um, so I had to listen to Atlanta Police Chief Darren Shearbaum's testimony a few times for the five episodes that were released earlier this month. So I didn't really feel like fully listening through again to find any, you know, funny bits to put in this episode. So I just kind of like skimmed through while multitasking. And weirdly enough, I noticed that the chief said some pretty shocking things that I somehow just must have missed in my previous viewings. So I, I will play those for you now. And I, I will warn you, it is it is pretty disturbing. Um, like all the subjects we, we put on air, their statements do not reflect our opinions or the official position held by whatever current company owns this podcast. So, yeah, like I said, warning, these are shocking, but I will let the chief speak for himself. Take aggressive action against these officers. Move to the front gate. More accelerant. Inflict vitally harm upon them. Launch illegal and criminal attacks. Attack members of law enforcement. Bring harm to our officers. These attacks are going to continue. Pretty, pretty shocking stuff coming from a police chief. Jesus. But that is only the tip of the iceberg because... To my surprise, after public comment was over and all the news cameras left after I left and, you know, everyone, everyone left the building, it turns out Darren Shearbaum gave a second testimony at the very end of the city council meeting that I I just completely missed until until now. So I will warn you, it is kind of lewd in nature. So if you want to skip past lewd police conduct, just fast forward like a minute or two. But anyway, uh, without without further ado, here is the secret recently unearthed second testimony presented by Atlanta Police Chief Darren Shearbaum. President Shipman, members of the uh, council, would like to brief you on events that transpired yesterday. I'm going to let the video play here while I, I walk through each of the uh, situations. What you see here is our partners at the DeKalb County Police Department, uh, the Sheriff of Fulton County, as well as the Georgia State Patrol. We're seeing changing out of the clothes that they were wearing. They're going to position themselves what it appears to be an attempt to keep uh, pursuing the officers. This is the officers see these. Uh, we had a rapid response from our partners as well as to change their clothing. Uh, different uh, groups were performing acts within the manner of their training and their discipline. At this time, our officers repositioning themselves inside of our partners. Uh, these officers had been stationary to ensure that they are being restrained. Uh, the officers are on city property uh, and are positioning themselves and reposition themselves to be prepared to go back in. Our officers are showing great restraint. Uh, they remained in a position. So what you see here is a lieutenant that is discharging. We're very fortunate uh, that that was the outcome. And I want to commend every man and woman on duty yesterday as they stood in the gap to do their job. Uh, those officers entered our partners. And what you see here, ladies and gentlemen, is as some of the, uh, the individuals that had just previously entered into those officers, 
They start changing back into the clothes that they were just wearing moments before. Just last night, officers of this department, as well as DeKalb County to the Georgia State Patrol uh, and the Sheriff's Department moved in. And I want to thank uh, the men and women again of the Atlanta Police Department, the Georgia State Patrol, uh, the Sheriff's Department, as well as the DeKalb County Police Department for the professionalism uh, that, that they demonstrated throughout the night and into the early hours of this morning. Uh, while many of us were asleep, they continued to work through the night. I, I've never seen that, so I appreciate APD for doing that. I would have loved for every one of those very hysterical people that we've been sitting listening to for two or three hours to have seen an actual video of what really did happen. And there may be great reasons that the administration chose to do it this way, but our media is gone and all the people that needed to see this are gone. Uh, I'm glad that nobody was hurt and none of our none of our employees were hurt yesterday. Oh, boy. Woo. <laughs> oh, well, that was that was certainly something I did not did not want to know that much about what the uh, the APD and their partners get up to after hours. Anyway, um, back to our regularly scheduled comedic japes. I know uh, Sheerbaum was was uh, addressed with some questions by Unicorn Riot when he was trying to exit, uh, which he then denied. He gave a very frustrated face and then denied answering and sw- and promptly left the building. Uh, well, in the company of the the New York Times uh, journalist. Oh, with 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 a friend of the show, Sean Keenan. <laughs> so that was that was a. Uh... That was most of Monday. Uh, yeah, that is everything that happened on Monday. Um, uh, so what? Uh, Monday evening, um, there, I went home to start working on an article. What did you do, Garrison? I went to the Purim in the woods. I got to share my my memory of the VeggieTales Esther story starring the Tickle Monsters. I, I got to bond with a few ex-evangelicals about that. So that was fine. Then there was an experimental noise show in the forest. And then you had a tragic neck injury on Monday night? So Tuesday, um, the group that we followed left out of the church and went to Norfolk Southern, um, which is one of the the funders of APF and uh, friend of the environment um, in Ohio. When they finished reading the letter, like all they asked was that the letter go to the the CEO. Yep, and they denied that. <laughs> And all they had to do was accept it and 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 move on. But they, they uh, d- while people were inside, uh, the security called. NS police. And if, if you're wondering, you're like, you know, NS police, what is what not, could that, what that's could that be? That's not a city in Atlanta. That, that isn't a city in Atlanta. What could that be? That is the Norfolk Southern police who are legally allowed to arrest people. And we, we thankfully, we avoided going to uh, Norfolk Southern police jail. Um, <laughs> going to Nor- Norfolk Southern court. <laughs> <laughs> Which certainly would have been a very legitimate court. Um, so, I mean, it would have been almost as legitimate as the real court that pe- <laughs> that's, the bail hearings happened at that same day. After successfully evading Norfolk Southern Jail, uh, Matt and I headed downtown for a march that was accompanied by a cadre of over 100 officers pinning this crowd onto the sidewalk. We got a whole, a whole police car just blocking the sidewalk. Like, just, a, a Georgia State University canine unit just blocking off the entire sidewalk next to a Fulton County Sheriff's vehicle. I like that the cops are just also commanding the corporate media on where they can stand. And the whatever, like, boomer journalist is with whatever, like, mainstream news outlet was very peeved off at this cop for telling him to get on the sidewalk. The next day, a smaller crowd met up at the same spot and broke off into little subgroups to walk around downtown Atlanta and hand out Defend the Forest leaflets. 
So all the little subgroups kind of meet up um, on uh, on Andrew Young and Peachtree, uh, right next to the Hooters and the Hard Rock Cafe. Um, <laughs> classic examples of Atlantan food. There was an Atlanta SWAT vehicle parked outside of the Hooters. Fuck it, the fuck, I'm outside a fucking Hard Rock Cafe, so I can't. I, I keep picking up this copyrighted music, but this big uh, Atlanta police SWAT vehicle parked on the block by uh, the Atlanta Police Foundation headquarters. All right, there's actually a pretty decent number of people gathered here for the flowering event today. They're uh, at the uh, Peachtree and Young International uh, Boulevard intersection, right across from the Hooters and the Hard Rock Cafe. There's a SWAT vehicle parked right behind us. There's about, I don't know, 20 to 30 officers stationed a little bit to our north. You know, normal police response to people handing out flyers. Just 50 officers and a SWAT team. Lieutenant Neil Welch approaches the crowd and gives them a dispersal order. They cross the street, walk like a black north, past some of the cops that are guarding the Wells Fargo building. Um, At this point, people chanted the cops to quit your jobs, quit your job. And one of the cops guarding the Wells Fargo says, that's actually a good idea. You can always quit your fucking job. That's actually the sound of us. <laughs> yeah, I already tried. And he's like, I tried to, uh, and they wouldn't let me. But like, I, I don't like laughing, but that one got me. That like, one got me. The cop responded like, not in like a glib tone. Like he was, it was actually, that actually he wanted to serious. Like, like, yeah, that's actually, yeah, that's actually a good idea. <laughs> Extremely funny moment. While this is happening, uh, there's another group who comes in to the side of Peachtree Center Mall and enters the mall to find Mayor Andre Dickens. So Andre Dickens is like the head of some kind of like board or something. Yeah, there there are a couple boards in Atlanta that stipulate the mayor is, is like the, the head of the board. And this is one of them. And it, it meets uh, in Peachtree Center Mall, as, <laughs> so, as so, one does. So the mayor is having a meeting in the mall. And it's, it's office spaces, you know, sort of above the mall. And so, so uh, three indigenous activists, uh, along with Kamal Franklin, um, arrive and um, they find the mayor. They enter the board meeting and they begin to read uh, this letter from the Muscogee Nation aloud. Mayor Dickens, in true mayor fashion, bolts away from this, uh, running through an exit door, which is then like blocked by a guard, which I, I think that has its own like set of legal issues. Um, essentially just ignoring them uh, over his shoulder. He calls out, I've, I've got a copy of the letter and hides just completely <laughs> trying to, to escape what is not a good look for him this this is what we call a ted wheeler moment <laughs> so oh, mares so as this happens i think like a like apex swat is de- so deployed they so apex and swat had had been elsewhere and they were called back to their vehicles um like right before this and then the activist exit and almost like in this very comical moment after they get out and away, uh, squads of, of, of these special units start rushing into the building, uh, of course, finding no one. Charlie Chapman ass shit, truly. Okay, even a more future version of Garrison here. Uh, apparently, I've been told by Daniel that his name is Charlie Chaplin. Uh, I don't know. He's a pedophile, so whatever. Uh, uh, Charlie, not, not Daniel. <laughs> Uh, oh boy. 
Um, and I, I do want to say I did try multiple times to take Matt to the Hard Rock Cafe or the Hooters, either one. Um, and and he refused my offer multiple times, uh, very, very rudely. Um, so at, at, at some point when I'm back in Atlanta, I will have to gather a troop of femboys and, and head over to the Hooters. Anyway, uh, next was the Community Movement Builders Rally on the evening of Thursday, March 9th, which had fewer jokes that night, uh, but there are a few embarrassing recording bloopers at the expense of my own ego. So I, I will play those for your amusement, you absolute sack fox. A banner, take a sign. Um, yeah, we'll get started soon. It is kind of raining. We'll see how many people show up and how, how large the police response will be in comparison. So what's, Penis. What's hap- what, what, what could happen here? Well, it could happen here. <laughs> A podcast by Robert Evans. Uh, we are at the site of the Martin Luther King Memorial. Did you see the two Sandy Springs police I, buses? I did see the Sandy. I lived in Sandy Springs for a year, and Docked. that brought back some memories. But yes, two Sandy Springs police buses. Uh, Sandy Springs, of course, being um, mostly outside of the perimeter. Um, a good, a good drive yeah. from here. That was good. That was good. All right, poggers. Absolutely poggers. The the police police has uh, has been stating. Well, I, never mind. I, I cut that. What am I saying? Um, big puddle uh, on the street, demonstrating the city's commitment to infrastructure. That was that was a joke because the drain was plugged. I accidentally turned off my uh, my, my my recording by tripping on some stairs. They're so they're so close together. We're just, they're just sandwiched in. Got a New York Times reporter standing in the middle of the street. Of course, the only person allowed to stand in the street is the one, the one New York Times reporter. I, w- I would estimate almost about a kilometer, but I'm Canadian, so that's not very helpful to you, to you U.S. listeners. The real outside agitators is Sandy Springs, please. Yeah, the police were ready to, to mass arrest the entire time. Um, I don't know if you mentioned this, but uh, so... Uh, in between um, the police line in front of the APF building and the protesters was essentially like a mixture of Cop Watch and National Lawyers Guild and, and ACLU. ACLU, because of course you had to have like both <laughs> both legal observer factions uh, just to make sure everybody's watching each other. So get ACLU can watch NLG get arrested. Who can watch ACLU get arrested? <laughs> it's turtles all the way down. Legal observers all the way down. Ho-ho! And we are back. That's that's great. All right. One of the stops on the tour of the Blonnie Forest that Joe Perry was doing throughout the week was the area of the land swap between the former owner of Black Hall Studios, Ryan Millsap, and DeKalb County's Entrenchment Creek Park. So on one side, there's this beautiful forested park that Ryan Millsap wants to trade for. Then on the other side is this massive mound of dirt that he currently owns, which is right next to Boulder Crest Road. That's that huge, huge dirt field that you see. And what happened is um, while that swap was being orchestrated, Black Hall was bringing thousands and thousands and thousands of dump truck loads of dirt and just filling it up, filling it up, filling it up. Somebody else is going to have to do the math, but I don't know if you say like 15 acres of dirt that is 
20 feet plus high how much dirt that is. That's a lot. It's not natural. <laughs> it's not something that's helping this flood prone area. All that's gonna run into here no matter how many silt fences you put up. So that's what they're calling Michelle Obama Park. <laughs> that's it, exactly, exactly right. Somebody needs to talk to Michelle and say, nah, -uh, you need to take your name off of that one. I don't know who, who got away with that, but that's, that's not it. By the way, you're seeing the most uh, picturesque side of that piece of land. Yeah, you get to the top. When you get to the top, it's worse. It's just, it's just, it's garbage. Well, the thing, and it is literally garbage because a lot of this stuff, this dirt came, you know, Ryan Millsap has, he, he is, he's not a movie mogul. He's, he's a land baron. He's, he's in real estate and he's made billions of dollars in real estate. And so that dirt comes from other properties. He's, he's digging up a place on, you know, on Boulevard to put some apartments in. He's pulling dirt out of there. That's what's coming in here. That's dirt coming from all these other construction sites you have. That is not topsoil <laughs> you can and i believe me i'm not saying i'm not making that up i've been over there and i've walked and i've seen what's in there i've seen water heaters in there i've seen gutters in there i've seen pipes i've seen all trash. kinds of crap it's trash it's a big trash mountain that's what they want to have be michelle obama park and <laughs> that ain't gonna happen so um yeah that's i just wanted you to kind of lay your eyes on what the county thought was a good idea and what Blackhall thought, of course, you know, Ryan Mill is a great idea for Ryan Millsap because the land that he acquired is worth way more, millions more. It's now worth millions more than, than when he made the swap. So he has made a lot of money on this swap, and that's why he's angry that he can't get his hands on it yet. Nobody knows what he's going to do with it because the original agreement between him and the county was that he was going to build movie studios on that land. Well, he can't now because he sold his rights to the movie studios to a company that's now called Shadowbox. They're the ones that owns his previous uh, studios. So he can't have a rival company right across the street from them. So he hasn't said, and nobody knows exactly what he's going to do with the property if he wins this court case and gets those 40 acres. Who knows? It's a mystery. So that's, that's where that stands right now. Hopefully we win the lawsuit. Um, if we do, he will, be, uh, he will have to foot the bill for repaving the path and redoing the parking lot and putting a new gazebo in. Um, that's what the judge decreed. That's why they said we don't need a restraining order. So all that is replaceable, so, except for the trees that he tore down. You know, those are going to take another 75 years, but who's counting? The fate of Michelle Obama Park is still up in the air as of time of recording. So yeah, excited excited to visit that if the land swap gets passed. Um, almost done. We're gonna we're gonna briefly briefly tap back into my conversation with Matt from the Atlantic Community Press Collective, and then unfortunately our jokes must come to an end. I think one thing that's been lost in all of this too is all of the lighthearted events that have continued to go on through the week, and you know we have this 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 uh, youth rally or there's the youth rally that's happening on. Saturday, we're of course recording this beforehand, and like the joy of the movement that was represented in in the bouncy castle rip, um, which was uh, first pointed at uh, a rifle had was pointed oh, yeah. at, and then... we, we haven't talked about the guns. Talk, talk about the guns in the bouncy castle. Uh, so, so one thing I think that that. <laughs> 
We, Fuck me. We, we, we didn't mention that. How, how can you forget about the guns in the bouncy castle? Um, so when, when the police came running up uh, onto the tarmac at RC Field where the bouncy castle was, of course, they had to point a rifle at the bouncy castle. And if that doesn't show that police are not here to have fun and have joy, I don't know what what is. I, I don't know if anyone was in it at the time. I don't think so. I think they were literally just pointing a gun at an empty, bouncy castle, um, which they have they destroyed. And and I think we have to take a moment to to mourn that. Did they destroy it or like deflate it? I think they destroyed it. Wasn't it like a rental or something? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so R.I.P. Bouncy House, uh, you will be missed, and all of the joy that you represented. Uh, <laughs> My girlfriend's texting me. Cringe. <sighs> let me let me let me let me let me check my my note. My my notes. Pip pip In case Garrison doesn't cut this, ask about Garrison's neck. What? Hmm. What? What'd you say? Ask about what Garrison did Friday. Fire burn tower. Saturday, Gresham Park. Sunday, Monday, noon, Tuesday. All right. All right. Okay, I'm gonna just going to look through my other notes app because I keep my notes in three different notes apps because I'm normal. So one thing that's been notable, um, especially in how the police talk about the forest is they've begun using like these, these militarized terms, like the denial of um, operating area that uh, we saw when uh, Ryan Millsap um, was in court in DeKalb County. Um, He said the GBI told him to clear the area to deny operating space. And um, you know, the use of terrorism, like there's, there's some, eerie parallels between the language that was used to describe insurgencies in in countries that America is invading or the United States is invading. And a lot of that language, like the military equipment that was used there, is has come home and is now being used against Americans uh, engaged in like these liberation struggles. I, I wonder where we've talked about that before. I don't know. Um, it could happen where? Speaking of, uh, it is still happening. Uh, Last week, approximately 500 people came out to City Hall as the City Council is now in the process of voting to approve public funds for the Cop City project. Nearly 300 people signed up for public comment with hundreds more waiting in line. Uh, Public comment lasted seven hours. And during so, not a single person voiced support of using taxpayer money to fund the police training facility. The Atlanta Community Press Collective have recently reported that the proposed city funds toward the Cop City project have ballooned to a minimum of $51 million, with the $30 million package awaiting final vote in city council, plus another at least $20 million chunk to be given to the Atlanta Police Foundation via a quote-unquote loan, which indicates that the Atlanta Police Foundation's private fundraising has not gone as well as they initially had hoped. For more on that, I'd recommend checking out the Press Collective's recent article from May 24th, and you can also donate to them to support their continued reporting of the happenings in Atlanta. You can find us on Twitter at Atlanta underscore press. Um, Our website is atlpresscollective.com. And you can find our Instagram at atlpresscollective. 
Uh, we have partnered with Open Collective. We are uh, fiscally sponsored now by Open the Open Collective Foundation um, in a way to uh, transparently fundraise um, in order to sustain our reporting. Um, everything up until actually the week of action, um, we've everything that we have done up until the week of action was all unpaid and. Um, it is our desire to to continue to grow with the movement, and uh, so we we're excited to find a partner in the Open Collective Foundation that can uh, continue that sort of horizontal uh, open um, organizing that that we have done internally. Okay, I th- yeah, I think I think I think we're good. I think we have it. Good job, team. Oh shit! I wasn't recording. I'm kidding. Fuck you! Fuck you! <laughs> hey we'll be back monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe it could happen here is a production of cool zone media for more podcasts from cool zone media visit our website coolzonemedia.com or check us out on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts you can find sources for it could happen here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.